Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. I got to tell you, one of my favorite things I do every single day as I go read the reviews for SaveWithConrad.com, check this one out from Paulo in Riverbank, California. He left us a five-star review, and he had this to say. Derek and the team were easy to work with and very accessible. The whole process was smooth and relatively fast. I was able to save money and reduce my interest rate by about 1%. No gimmicks. Conrad and his team will drop kick your costs and put you over with more money in your pocket. Head over to SaveWithConrad.com, brother. I love when people work wrestling lingo into the reviews and even cut a little promo. Thanks for that, Paulo. You put a smile on my face today. And that's what we'd like to do for your family. Put a smile on your face with how much money you can save. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. And dude, if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. So what are you waiting for? Get yourself a quick quote right now. Interest rates are on the rise and you don't want to miss this. Waiting will only cost you money. Hurry to save with Conrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh yeah, no house payments for two months. Come get you some of that mean gene. Save with Conrad.com. Man, we love talking about our friend Steven Singer. And I'll tell you, the competition must really hate this guy. He just makes the experience of buying a diamond better and better. And he makes it fun. Steven is the very first to offer each and every customer the perfect price. That's right. Have you ever wondered if you're getting the best price? Are you uncomfortable negotiating? Well, head to Steven Singer Jewelers and you're guaranteed to get the perfect price. You'll never pay more than the guy sitting next to you. Here's a little insider tip. Most jewelers mark their merchandise way up just to mark it down to make you feel like you're getting a deal. The guy next to you may be paying less. Do you want the most important purchase of your life to be based on your negotiating skills? That's never the case at Steven Singer because at Steven Singer Jewelers, you're guaranteed to get the perfect price all day, every day, 365 days a year. That's why we trust Steven Singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. So check out Steven Singer Jewelers at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly or online at IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price.
Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing great. Looking forward to another 83 weeks where we live to enlighten and entertain. Well, this is going to be an interesting show. We're talking about one of the great what ifs in the history of professional wrestling. The name of the show is the big bang, but I thought with uh, last week being the 20 year anniversary of WCW running their final show, that fateful Monday nitro from Panama city beach. Why not talk about what the plans would have been had the deal gone through for Eric Bischoff and fusion media to take over. Let's, uh, let's sort of start at the beginning, Eric, when did. I think you've, uh, you've, you've told the story before that when you first came back to world championship wrestling, it was apparent to you that time Warner was not really in the long haul for this thing anymore. What were some of the things that made you think that, Hey, they might be ready to dump this thing. Yeah. A couple things before we get into that, you know, I, I think the most important perspective about that time because context is king sure and, and people that are listening to this that really don't know anything about wcw internally or was never really exposed to it other than what they heard through the grapevine so to speak um, there was always from day one a consistent pressure to eliminate WCW from the Turner Broadcasting portfolio. There were a lot of executives, many of these. In fact, I dare say almost every executive that reported directly to Ted Turner, they all agreed and were constantly trying to convince Ted to not have WCW being a part of Turner Broadcasting programming. Not WCW Saturday night, not the main event show on TBS on Sunday nights, nothing in syndication. They simply didn't want wrestling. And it was a constant battle. When I got to WCW, I heard almost immediately about the number of executives that were constantly trying to pull the plug or convince Ted to pull the plug on WCW. So that was kind of a prevailing undercurrent uh, or shadow on WCW for a long time. And of course, many of these executives were justified because WCW had lost so many millions, tens of millions of dollars. There was a lot of negative PR that adversely affected Turner Broadcasting and Ted Turner. Uh, so there was a there was always a good reason. And, and those reasons were fielded consistently from the very beginning of WCW and Turner Broadcasting. Now, once WCW started to become successful, and going into 96 and 97, it became apparent that Ted was validated. All of the executives that previously had been anxious to convince Ted to pull the plug were now slapping each other on the back and, and Ted uh, and congratulating everybody on being such a visionary. <laughs> so it was an interesting time. But what happened on, you know, beginning, not in the very beginning, but probably six months or a year or so after the Time Warner merger had been announced, I started recognizing changes in the interactions with the people in Turner Broadcasting who I had to report up to either directly or indirectly. And I'm talking about people like Vicki Miller, for example, who at some point was the head of finance. Uh, that was one good example. And there were others. All of a sudden, these people who had kind of recognized 
And I'm talking at a very high level management level within Turner Broadcasting. These are not WCW management people. I was the head of WCW, well, with Harvey Schiller and or Bill, Bill Shaw, depending on when you want to look at it. But the people within Turner Broadcasting that had Ted Turner's ear, the people on the executive committee of Turner Broadcasting that had a tremendous amount of influence and probably directly or indirectly on the board of directors at Turner Broadcasting, those people who had previously really were all kind of banded together and felt like WCW should not be a part of the Turner Broadcasting portfolio going back to day one. Those people during the Time Warner merger and leading up to it and post-merger were very emboldened because they recognized. I didn't, to my you know discredit, I, I wasn't mature enough or close enough, I guess, to the epicenter really to recognize that the main advocate for WCW for all of these years, the guy who was, had been getting, you know, congratulated for his vision and foresight with WCW because they were now turning a profit and landing six out of the top 10 spots during the course of a week, mind you, not just a day in all of cable to- programming. Um, those same executives, now that they saw Ted Turner losing his grip on Turner Broadcasting, because that's exactly what happened. Read Ted Turner's autobiography, if you don't believe me. Ted Turner didn't even realize that he was losing control of his own company. I certainly didn't know it. But as those people, though those executives who were now emboldened because of the Time Warner merger, um, started in the middle of a year, for example, changing my budget even though the budget had been approved a year previously, for example, and even though I was operating within that budget and revenues were tracking exactly the way they had been forecasted in, in, in preparations for that budget. um, All of a sudden now we're making wholesale radical changes to my operating budget. And once that started happening, um, Although I'm not, I wasn't at that time, and certainly still not, a seasoned corporate executive in a public corporate company environment, I, I was smart enough to see the handwriting on the wall. I didn't know why the handwriting was on the wall. I didn't know who did it, but the handwriting was on the wall. Things were really beginning to change in a in a really adverse way. We went. I went from being able to pick up a phone and getting approval for doing things and look forward to to the conversation and the process to being told how to produce a show by a group of people who had never, ever watched professional wrestling. And I started seeing that in in about 98. I think you, um, you pinpointed it as maybe August 98. So to put that in context, we're talking like a month after Goldberg wins the title fresh off of the incredible Georgia dome show. Just a month after the Carl Malone, Dennis Rodman mixed tag. And already you think, Hey man, I see, uh, I see an iceberg ahead. Yeah. And again, I didn't know it was an iceberg. I didn't know the size of the iceberg. I knew there was one there. I didn't know if it was a little iceberg that I would just navigate around or whether it was one that would, as it did eventually take down the ship. Um, I didn't know. I just knew there was something out there that was not good because again, up until that point, you know, it it was like WCW was the golden child of Turner broadcasting in many respects, not in terms of total revenues, but in terms of it being a turnaround and a success story 
and getting positive publicity and getting a major amount of national media that was attractive to advertisers. You know, so many things were going right that to me to, to have to sit down at the end of August, whenever that was, and sit around a table filled with 15 executives, 13 of them who I'm, I had never heard of before, and then proceed to tell me how I was going to run the company, both from a creative perspective and from an operational one, while pulling the financial rug out from underneath me that they had laid the year before, um, it 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 did not bode well. <laughs> and you've you've told us here on the show before that that year, sort of, I guess maybe summer of ninety eight, until you leave in in early September ninety nine, that's the least fun you'd had in the wrestling business by a mile, right? It's the least fun I've had in my life. Wow. By a mile, I've, I've always been able to find something positive in just about anything. And sometimes it takes longer than others. And sometimes the transition from a bad situation to a good situation has taken me longer than I've wanted it to, but I've always known that it was going to be there. Um, and, you know, I've, I've said this before, you know, I've got a lot of regrets, I guess, if you want to categorize some of my reflections as a regret, um, but the one thing really that I personally regret is not going with my gut, which usually when I go with my gut, I'm right. Not all the time. Usually if I trust my instincts, it turns out to be pretty good. Um, in this particular case, my instinct told me to leave WCW in 98 to walk away from it. Because I personally, from a selfish perspective, it would have been a great move for me professionally because I would have left when WCW was not only from a public perception um, perspective, but from a financial perspective, WCW was on a major role. And if I had made the decision, as my gut told me to do, to say, thank you, gentlemen, but this is not the WCW that I signed up for. These are not the conditions that I agreed to work within. And uh, I think it would be better for both Turner Broadcasting and Eric Bischoff to part company. And I could have done that in a, in a, in a professional and non-antagonistic way. And that was my thought. I talked it over with Mrs. B. You know, we spent more than one night or two talking about doing it because once I get an idea in my head, I'm pretty much, I don't think about things for very long and that's either a good thing or a bad thing. But typically once an idea as radical as saying, you know what, I'm going to walk away from this because this is not right. Once something like that sets in, in my head, it's unlikely that I'll talk myself out of it. In this case I did. And I really regret doing so. So you know, we've talked about you leaving WCW before it's available in the archives over at 83weeks.com while you're out, or I guess I'm just trying to get a timeline together. When do you first meet the folks who would ultimately help form the group to try to buy WCW? I think Greenberg and Badal are their names, Brian Badal and Steve Greenberg. Yep. When, when do you, how are you introduced to them? Can you tell us that origin story? Okay, so we're jumping, you know, in terms of timeline here, we're jumping from August, September 98. Right. And now we're jumping forward to, gosh, I guess it would have been 2000 when I met Steve Greenberg and Brian Badal. 
Oh, pretty so, sure. That so, was so it. when you come back in 90, well, you leave in 99, but when you come back in, I guess, April of 2000, I think that's right. Uh, you had met them during your time off or you met them once you were back in the saddle with WCW. No, I, I met them once I was back in the saddle. I didn't know Brian Badal or Steve Greenberg personally. I knew of Brian Badal in particular because of what he did with classic sports, which eventually became ESPN sports classic and, and all that. So I was very aware of Brian, but I didn't know him personally. It wasn't until I had come back to WCW and was really getting a much better look at just how much Turner Broadcasting had changed since I had been sent home in September of 99 um, and, and had become even more dysfunctional than it was when I left uh, or when I wanted to leave originally in 98, which we were just talking about. It was a real freaking mess. And somewhere between January when I came back and whatever it was in January or February, I, I, I reached out to Brad Siegel and said, dude, there's nothing Eric Bischoff could do. There's nothing Steve Spielberg could do. There's nothing Vince McMahon could do to save this company within this organization, meaning the new time Warner Turner organization. It is a, my exact words to Brad were this is a square peg in a very, very round hole. It's never going to work. And I suggested to Brad early on, shortly after getting there, it didn't take long to see what a cluster it was. And I suggested to Brad that maybe I find somebody to buy it while it, in, again, my exact words, while it still has any value. Because at the, the the rate that things were going and the changes that were being, you know, that, that manifested with, with throughout Turner, this isn't just WCW, throughout the entire Turner organization, it would have been just a matter of time. And it, it eventually was a matter of time before it just WCW was not worth anything. And, and Brad, you know, kind of looked at me and laughed me off the first time I mentioned it. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from him and said, hey, you, you think you might be able to? And that's when I, during that period of time is when I was introduced to Steve and, and Brian. How do you go about being introduced to them? You guys have a mutual friend. You're one degree separated. Just talk me through that process. Yeah, there was a gentleman by the name of Peter Goober. And if you Google Peter Goober, G-U-B-E-R, not G-O-O-B-E-R, but Peter Goober, uh, was at one time, I think he was the chairman of Sony Pictures, a very, very, very successful individual in the entertainment business. But more than that, he was a real entrepreneur. And I had gotten to know Peter Goober. Oh, I had known Peter for a couple of years by this point. Had uh, actually, he flew me out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, just to spend an evening riffing, as I like to say, just exchanging ideas, no agenda, just let's just talk about big ideas. It was really fun, by the way. He's a fascinating dude, very, very successful. And he, he owned a company called Mandalay Entertainment, which he still does. And Mandalay, up until COVID, was producing some of the biggest titles and feature films that, you know, we'd all recognize those titles, but he, and, and Peter owned a company called Mandalay sports entertainment. Now that division of Mandalay entertainment 
was designed to capitalize on kind of ancillary sports opportunities. You know, Peter also owned, I think at that time, seven or eight of the most successful minor league ball teams, baseball teams in the United States. So he had a, he was, Peter gravitated towards sports and entertainment. And therefore I think his interest in WCW and we had explored a couple of different opportunities a year or two previous, you know, before some of them, you know, we actually tried to work on some of them were just riffing, as I said, like uh, Peter and I did in Jackson hole at a retreat. Uh, but for the most part, you know, we never really found a project we wanted to do together. I think there was a couple, there was one, what was the animated chow to heads? Do you remember that? Have you heard about that? I, I think I've heard you say the phrase. I didn't know it was a thing. Yeah. Charlie heads was actually a really, really cool little animated project. that some very successful people in the film industry. Now, um, came to me with through Peter and we started developing. So there was a, there was an existing relationship, Peter. Um, and by the way, I knew Peter, I was introduced to Peter Goober through Jason Hervey. So that that's kind of like the, uh, the, the connective tissue in all of this, but when it came time and to actually really explore the possibility of acquiring WCW, the only person I knew with that kind of cash was Peter Goober who could have written a check for 60 or $70 million without even having to call his accountant and telling him he was going to do it. Um, so I went to Peter and, you know, one of the things I learned about Peter early on and, and it became kind of a, um, an inside joke is, always use other people's money as wealthy as Peter was. I don't know how much money he was worth, but he was ridiculous. The amount of money he had um, and still had, it still does. Um, one of the things about Peter is he very rarely invested his own money, but he would package other people's money sometimes with a little bit of his own. And that's not unusual by the way, with really successful people. 800 million is what Google says, by the way. Yeah. I, well, yeah. And that's, and he's probably spent a couple bucks. So, he was probably worth close to a billion dollars at the time, but which he still is. But Peter said, you know what? I, I got some guys that really might be an interesting, you know, couple of pieces to this puzzle. And Peter was going to come in at some level, but he really wanted Brian Badal because of Badal's expertise and raising venture, venture capital on Wall Street. You know, Brian had a very, very good relationship with Wall Street. And I'm talking to major investment firms like then, you know, Pincus Wahlberg, for example. You know, these were people that Peter did business with on a daily basis and had great relationships with on a daily basis. So Peter contacted Brian and Steve. Steve and Brian contacted me and off we went. By now, you know, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Say it with us, Blue Chew. Blue Chew is making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom by offering chewable tablets that can help men get stronger and longer lasting erections. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablets help men achieve a harder, stronger erection to combat all forms of ED. 
you know, erectile dysfunction. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at a pharmacy. But maybe best of all, it ships right to your door in a discreet package. Now, the process is simple. You'll sign up at bluechew.com. You'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problems here. Blue Chew's sildenafil and tadalafil tablets are chewable. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, and they prepare and ship direct, so it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And here's a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code 83 weeks at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is 83 weeks to receive your first month for free. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring our podcast. So tell me about your initial meeting with, with Peter Goober. Do you, do you meet him at a country club? You meet him at a restaurant, you go to his house. He can, well, how does that work? I think the first time I sat down with him, I, I may have met him in his office in passing. Well, cause I, you know, I was, I, I visited Peter's office at Mandalay quite often, you know, Jason hurry, like I said, had a, had an office there and was working for Peter and doing so very successfully. And I, you know, whenever I was in LA, I would drop by and hang with Jason and Jason, you know, at one point introduced me to Peter, but it was, you know, a couple of months after I first met Peter, when, you know, Peter decided he'd want to sit down and, and have a longer chat with me where I really got to know him. And that was at his house in Beverly Hills. House is not the right word, but it's where he lived in Beverly Hills. His compound. Yeah. I was something. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, I, I know we've never really talked about it and I think you and I probably just take it for granted. Explain to some of our listeners because they've heard Jason Hervey's name a lot in regard to wrestling and for, for better or worse, a lot of people only know him as the wonder years guy. And some people have scratched beneath the surface and realized that you and he were business partners and had a production company for a long time, but he's multi-generational in Hollywood, right? Can you sort of just right. give some context to Jason Hervey and why he knew all of these major players or how? Yeah. Um, you know, Jason, as you pointed out, best known for, um, several years of success. In fact, I think the wonder years on ABC won an Emmy for best television series, I believe, uh, might've won a couple Emmys and Jason, you know, that's what everybody or where everybody knew Jason from, but Jason had been an actor since he was four years old. Jason did a lot. He started, I believe he started uh, his on-camera work um, in the United States, but eventually was doing commercials in Japan when he was four and five and six years old. So in, in Jason's mother, Marsha, who has since passed, wonderful woman, by the way, I, I miss her. Um, she was a very, very uh, positive woman and a very talented one. She owned her own talent agency. Um, so her husband, Al, who just recently passed away, another super guy, um, his, his brother is, um, an, an attorney in, in, um, Los Angeles. No, maybe it, no, it was, it was Marsha's brother. I believe no, it was Marsha's brother. 
was an entertainment attorney, attorney in Los Angeles, grew his business, eventually became a business manager for, without doubt, the biggest names that we'll hear in our lifetimes in Hollywood. Uh, he managed their finances, uh, guided their careers, negotiated their deals, all of that. So Jason, Jason was really a third generation, you know, extension in the enter- entertainment business. And because he'd been an actor for so long as a child actor, eventually growing into his teens and getting his gig on Wonder Years, Jason was very well connected in Hollywood. Um, he knew a lot of producers. He knew a lot of uh, studio heads. He knew a lot of deal makers in Hollywood. So at, at a very young age, Jason was a very successful young man. I just think it's interesting to sort of connect all the dots behind the scenes. So you have this meeting with, with Peter Goober, uh, once upon a time you, you get deep in the weeds in his palatial estate in Beverly Hills. And then eventually you get to meet, uh, Badal and Greenberg. And you said you were kind of familiar with their background, catch everybody up on, on how they, they made their cash and how it was really probably a brilliant concept that we would see wrestling companies adopt years later. Yeah. And, and, and I don't want to sound like an expert on Brian's career, but I'll tell you what I knew of Brian back then, you know, Brian and Steve recognized way before anybody else did that there was value in legacy or vintage sports footage, especially in the college area, you know, up until that point, you know, college games, they they would be televised. They would be taped some way, shape or form, film, whatever it may be. They'd be used, you know, for example, you know, a, a, the 1974, you know, national champ, national football championship between two college teams, for example, that was a big damn deal when it happened, but after it was over, it would, somebody would, you know, stick it in a can and, and, and put it in the film vault, put a little date on it and forget about it. Right. It had no value in, in the entertainment business. You know, oftentimes, you know, programming is recognized as either being evergreen, meaning you can make money on it forever, or it's an OTO. It's a one-time only it's an event. And after that event happens, especially back then, um, the, the, the perception was, or the feeling was, um, the business model was once it's over with just store it, there's no value. Brian and Steve recognized the value and went around very discreetly, very quietly with no press releases, no big announcements. They just kind of like American pickers. You ever watch American pickers? Yeah. It's just like that. I think. They went around, they jumped in their little American picker van, their version of it, went around and struck deals with different colleges and universities and, and all of the people associated with it, the, the associations and all that, who controlled that content and made ridiculously sweet deals to buy all that vintage archived college sports footage in some, and in some cases, a professional sports footage. And by the way, Steve Greenberg's father was Hank Greenberg, which most people who are baseball fans will recognize if you don't Google that shit. So Steve had an interest in kind of vintage archived sports material just because he grew up in it. Brian saw it for a business opportunity. And after they had gone around and cut all of these deals so discreetly that I don't think anybody knew what the other was doing. 
they aggregated all this content and launched the, the classic sports network on cable as a standalone cable outlet. And once that started getting really hot, ESPN went, whoa, wait a minute. We should be doing that. Why aren't we doing that? And after a couple months or years or whatever it was of asking themselves, fuck, why are we doing that? They wrote a check, a big check. And that's where Steve and Brian really made a name for themselves. And that was what I was aware of. Now, there were other things, and there are certainly many you know, things that have happened since then that Brian has become extremely successful at. I don't read as much about Steve as I do about Brian. But um, And Brian and I still follow each other on social media, by the way. Every once in a while, I go back and forth. So still have a little bit of a relationship with Brian. But um, that's when... You know, it made sense to me and a lot of other people that here are some people that now not only are they interested in wrestling, which is a great thing, but they also see value in 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 vintage collectible video, I guess, if you will, or, or archived material, and they know how to make money. And then more importantly for me at that time, they knew how to raise money. And that's what I was most concerned about. So I want to talk about raising money and, and I want to circle right back to that. I want to briefly mention that I think the number is $175 million. That's what they wound up selling the the deal to ESPN for. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it sounds about right. So here's what I wanted to ask though. You just identified these guys as being guys who could recognize value in archival footage. We know this deal is going to fall apart. We know that ultimately Vince McMahon is going to swoop in and sort of pick the bones. And we know that what he wound up monetizing uh, yes, he did try a, a silly, goofy, failed invasion angle that felt like a home run, but somehow wasn't, but he did monetize the library. Was no one thinking about the library from Jim Crockett promotions and world championship wrestling of any significant value? I mean, at the time, I guess it's important context is King. We say it on the show here all the time in early 2001, there was no such thing as a streaming service. There was no Netflix. In fact, Blockbuster was still king. Did you guys think, well, a cable channel is not going to want to have nonstop wrestling programming. That probably won't work. And I don't know how much, you know, meat left there is on the bone to go the Blockbuster VHS or DVD route. What's the thinking there? And, and why did they not see the value in the wrestling space? I can't speak for Steve and Brian on this. I, I, I can only tell you what my impressions were during that time based on the, all the conversations that we had had during that period of time. And while Steve and, and Brian obviously recognized the value in archival collegiate sports, I think I would be misleading our audience if I were to suggest that they saw value in the wrestling libraries and it's exactly because of what you just said, Conrad streaming, not only didn't exist, it didn't even exist as a concept in anybody's mind, right? It would have been considered futuristic, um, interesting, but more than likely induced by hallucinogens. (laughs) Had anybody sat down and said, Hey, I got an idea someday in 2020 or 2017 or whenever it really started, there's going to be a way that you're going to be able to provide content. Get this, everybody see that flip phone on your belt. 
that mucker father is going to play video. Right. And you're going to be able to watch it anywhere you want, or you're going to be able to watch fantastic movies and great, you know, all kinds of great content on this thing on your cable. You got to have another little box. Somebody named Apple's going to make it, I think, or somebody else. And if you have one of those, you're going to be able to access content without even having to watch it on cable television. People would have nodded their heads and said, wow, that's really cool. Buck Rogers come back in 20 years. Right. It didn't exist. So therefore I, it, 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 would be, I think, a stretch of my imagination to think that perhaps Brian and Steve saw value in any of that content. It's fascinating when no one saw the value Vince McMahon did. And again, we're comparing apples to pomegranates as Bruce likes to say, because Vince was in that business. So as far as Vince is concerned, I'm sure in his mind's eye, he doesn't just own WWE. He owns wrestling. Do you disagree with that? Can we stop right there, Conrad? Yeah. I, I apologize. I, I respect the hell out of you and I don't like to interrupt people. Oh yeah, go ahead. But I think that's a really interesting point to kind of pump the brakes on. I, we all assume now, because we know how the story played out. Right. Right. 20 years later, before any of this streaming existed, before any of the opportunities to monetize footage existed, because the only manner in which one could monetize archive footage when Vince acquired all of that archive footage was through DVDs. That's it. Right. Or perhaps use it within, you know, as a clip within a television show or something like that. But the WWE network didn't exist. And if somebody would have tried to explain it to Vince in 19 or excuse me, in 2001 or 2000, whenever he bought it, it would have been a short conversation. Vince would have left him out of the room. Of course. I suspect. I think the reason Vince originally, and it turned out to be a brilliant move. I'm not taking anything away from it, but I think the intent, the motivation to acquire all of that footage was probably driven more by WWE's desire to control the wrestling product. I agree. And if that meant taking other people's libraries, so there wasn't this other footage floating around out there um, at Blockbuster on DVDs, so be it. Yeah. If I can buy that footage, if I'm Vince McMahon for pennies on the dollar, completely wall off any access to professional wrestling content from anybody other than me, if I'm Vince McMahon, I'm going to do that. And I think that was more that motivation than it was, hey, let's aggregate all this footage because who knows, somebody's going to you know rub a bottle and a genie's going to pop out and a streaming platform is going to become <laughs> a reality. I don't think it was that. I agree. I just, uh, it, it's funny to see how it played out, you know, that Vince is positioned as this visionary and I'm not saying he wasn't. I mean, I remember Bruce telling me in the early days of something to wrestle that when he first went to work for Vince in 87, Vince was pitching the WWE network. But of course, back then he thought it would be sort of like Oprah did 10 years ago when she created her own cable station, not necessarily an OTT thing. I mean, my goodness, the internet. It didn't exist yet back then. It's not like Al Gore had invented it quite yet. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, let's get back on track. Uh, you, you have these meetings with Brian Bedall and Greenberg and you say that, Hey, one of their strengths is they know how to fundraise. So you said that in a way where it made me think it doesn't matter how much money they made, uh, by selling to ESPN, that 175 million, they weren't in fact using their own money, your old Peter Goober trick. So perhaps they're going to go make a pitch and 
that $175 million sale just really looks strong on a resume and helps probably get some of those meetings. Tell me about some of your fundraising efforts with these guys and what that looks like. Well, they did put up their own money, by the way. And what I've learned, and I've only stepped into the fundraising world on a, on a major level like this um, twice in my life. <clears throat> and every deal's different, you know, every opportunity's different. So they all kind of take different shapes and forms. But the one common denominator that I've seen in the two experiences that I've had is that, for example, Brian and Steve, before they pitched to anybody, they committed. I think $5 million of their own money. So they had skin in the game because I think the thinking was, even though they had a tremendous track record and they were very successful guys, brilliant guys um, that had a, what they felt was a great business plan to present to potential investors. And these are big institutional investors, by the way, this isn't just guys with money. These are institutional investors. And those institutional investors weren't really going to take any pitch seriously if the people pitching it didn't have skin in the game. So they put, they did put up some of their own money, not the entire amount, but they did put up some of their own money. I think the initial investment from them was 5 billion. Then they went out to raise the additional capital, as I said, through institutional investors. And those were, you know, they refer to them, you know, as dog and pony shows. And it's really, and it's because, you know, you, you set a meeting you know, Brian, myself, Steve Greenberg, and there might have been two or three other people on our side there to, to provide support and, and help, you know, answer questions if need be. Um, we would sit in, sit in a big room in, in New York City on Wall Street. You know, I keep using, you know, War, Warburg Pincus or Pincus Warburg because that's the one I remember most vividly. Um, you sit in a giant conference room with, I think in that case, there might have been 20 25 different, you know, executives from Warburg Pincus in that room. And Brian and Steve would get up there and walk them through the deck and make their pitch. And once that was over, we would all sit down. Brian would sit down and Steve would sit down and all, everybody in our team was sitting across from everybody on their team. And it became a question and answer format. And I, you know, I laid out of most of that because on the financial side, I mean, I'm not a financial guy. I'm not a CFO. I'm not an investment banker. Never was, never want to be. But so Steve and Brian and, and some of the people that Steve and Brian brought in to assist them as smart as they were, um, they handled a lot of the financial discussions. I got tagged in when it came time to talk about the business in a macro, in a broader sense. Uh, to talk about the industry and why it worked and and why it was going to continue to grow and where it had been and the things that I had done because they were interested in that to take WCW from a $25 million a year company losing $10 million a year to, I think at one point we were $350 million a year company spitting off, depending on whose Kabuki accounting you wanted to believe, a minimum of $50 million a year. And they want to know how that happened. And we talked about some of those things in, in a different, you know, in a business sense, not so much in a creative, you know, narrative, but from a business, you know, st strategic kind of conversation, what changed, you know, what happened when everybody went from targeting teens and preteens to nitro targeting 18 to 49 year old males for the first time ever. 
you know, why was live TV more important than tape TV? Those types of conversations we is where I got tagged in. Are you uh nervous, anxious, excited when you walk into you know, a room full of billionaires and you realize how much money is at stake here and and who who you're presenting to? And maybe they're doing most of the presenting, but just talk me through I mean, you, you sort of self-deprecate sometimes you're on the show and you say, you know, oh, I, I was lucky to not be selling meat out of the back of a truck. And now here you are on wall street. Well, what's that gotta be like? I didn't, it didn't, it didn't sink into me. I, I mean, it didn't affect me. It's a better way to say it. I wasn't phased by it. I wasn't intimidated. I wasn't uh, nervous about it. Um, I've always always most of my life if there's something that i want to do and i decide to do it i have no fear and that's not bravado i think it's just excitement and confidence and i'm well you know i was well aware when i walked into those meetings that i was the least qualified person in the room to be in that kind of a meeting i'm cool with that I don't want to be on wall street. I don't want to have to go through what people that end up on wall street go through in order to get there. I don't want to do that. I have zero interest in that. Um, so I didn't feel inferior. I just knew what my lane was and I was very, very confident in my lane. And while I knew I was the least qualified person from a financial analyst perspective to be in that room, I was the most qualified person to talk about the product that we were there to represent. And once I got tagged in, I didn't feel any different presenting my thoughts or ideas than I would doing it on this show or with you, you know, sitting down at the boot over some chicken wings and a cold beer. <laughs> Just same thing. All right. By now, you know that Eric Bischoff loves his dog, Nikki. We see evidence of that all over his Instagram. And I know you love your dog too, but we might be able to do a little better for our dogs than we have been. I'm excited to tell you about solid gold. Did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies. Solid gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. And I'll be honest, I didn't really understand all of that until I realized my dogs have allergies. And now that I know that, dude, it is solid gold through and through. These are much happier dogs. I can personally attest for that. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America. Started back in 74 by Sissy McGill. She's a pioneer and a trailblazer. Because back then, man, pet food was dominated by dudes. She came in and said, I'm breaking up that racket, baby. I'm a disruptor, and I'm going to create a natural pet food before it was cool. That's exactly what she did. Her inspiration was that European Great Danes live longer than American Great Danes. What's up with that? Well, it turns out that she was able to create something pretty special. Hundenflocken, which is dog flakes in German. They've now provided high-quality nutrition and digestive health for over 20 generations of dogs. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high-quality food is the best way to impact our pet's mind, body, and spirit. Now, for over 45 years, Solid Gold has revolutionized the holistic pet food category 
They have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including healthy whole grain and grain-free options, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs. Solid Gold Foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods, balanced with living probiotics, and fueled with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, supporting gut health and nourishing your pet inside and out. Right now, to save 30% on Solid Gold products, just go to solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. That's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks to save 30% on select Solid Gold products. Remember, solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. So chat me up a little bit about the context of that meeting. Uh, again, I know you're, you're, they're going to talk about financials and all that, but when it gets down to the core of it, not cutting time, so to speak, if you're pitching me, I think, and everyone listening to this probably is thinking the same thing. Well, Eric, uh, you were in charge and yeah, made a bunch of money, but now it's losing a bunch of money. Why should we continue to put good money after bad? Uh, How do we know that this won't wind up the same way that Turner is with this product and they're going to wash their hands of it. It's a great question. And I'm going to be very deliberate about how I answer it. When we, you know, we, you and I have been doing these shows now for three years and there's been a real evolution of how we discuss these things, how I discuss them really. Um, And I want to be sure that I don't have too much fun with this. But at the same time, I'm going to be really honest about it. Um, for years since we've been doing this, I've tried to explain to people, including you, Conrad, what it was like, and you know what really led up to WCW's, as, as people like to say, demise or sale to WWE. However, you want to look at it, and I've I've talked till I'm blue in the face about the types of things that I talked about in the beginning of this episode, which was what was going on with Turner, the fact that nobody within Turner or Time Warner, and now that Time Warner controlled Turner, all those Turner people you know, all of a sudden got six inches taller and you know gained 40 pounds of shredded muscle. All of those people were really determined to get rid of WCW. And the changes that were forced upon us from a budgetary point of view and every other way that you know is too boring to talk about at this point again, But those were the reasons why WCW ended up where it ultimately ended up. Fortunately for me, I didn't have to explain it. Brian Badal and Steve Greenberg did. And they were much better equipped to have those conversations from a purely financial point of view in a corporate accounting point of view than I was because they were finance people. They were professional investors. They understood the books. They had gone through the books at Turner Broadcasting. They saw exactly what Guy Evans in his book, Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Spectacular Fall, whatever it was, of of Ted Turner's WCW. Guy Evans does a phenomenal job in his research, in, in his research, interviewing the people that were a part of those decisions that Brian Badal was able to ascertain going through the books that he went through during his due diligence, which is the process that you go through making sure you completely understand the scope of what it is you're about to try to acquire. And once they went through it, I didn't have to explain anything. They did. So it goes well, 
I guess I, I've never really drilled down on this before. It's been reported that you guys were putting together an offer in excess of $60 million. Some places said 61, some said 62, some said 67. How did you guys arrive at an offer price for WCW? Did the number change as you went through the due diligence? And did you know that number when you had these pitches on wall street? Well, we certainly knew the number because we had to know what we were asking for. You know, you can't get a meeting with that kind of that, that, that much power in a room and have someone say, okay, so what are you looking for? And say, well, I'm not sure yet. We'll get right. back to you on that. So clearly they had done their research. They had gone through the financials uh, from the beginning of WCW's history to that moment and were able to put together what they felt was the right p- business plan with the correct projections in terms of what the show would do from an advertising point of view, what the show would do or what WCW would do under this new ownership in terms of television advertising, like, like I say, uh, television licensing, uh, international licensing, pay-per-view revenue, licensing and merchandise you know, to consumer all of that above, all of that and more that's what Steve and Brian and their team were so good at and they really did. I was not involved in that process in all fairness um, I was involved in other things during that same period of time and, but I was not involved in the formula to determine you know the money raise I guess so we didn't know we did we definitely knew it going into those pitch those dog and pony shows we definitely knew it do you know if the number changed? Like for instance, was there a higher number and then there was a lower number once they really got to do their due diligence and look at the Turner books? I, I, I don't because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been involved in those discussions. Those discussions would have been taking place between Brian Bedall and Steve Greenberg and someone from Turner. I would assume a Vicky Miller or somebody at the head of finance, possibly a Terry McGurk, but I would not have been a part of those conversations or the process in determining what those numbers should be, or if indeed they should be reduced based on new information. I think a lot of that, I know the narrative is out there and people, I hate to call it reported people spread rumors about various stages of the potential acquisition and what was really going on behind the scenes. And all of it is nonsense and bullshit. But I think as so often the case, the nonsense and bullshit, the kind of, permeated the, the the digital you know airspace so to speak um was completely inaccurate and since that time there's been this you know story that's narrative that's still floating around out there i know this is kind of silly but i've never asked so i want to ask were badal and greenberg wrestling fans no okay I mean, certainly aware of it, Brian, more than Steve, you know, um, Brian grew up, you know, like so many people did watching wrestling and being amazed by it. Certainly from a business perspective, had watched it and thought, wow, this is really something, you know, because it was growing WWF. If you look at where they started out in the eighties, when Vince bought the company from his father and all of a sudden flipped the switch, took it national. Now there's big pay-per-views. Certainly by this point, you know, anybody that was in entertainment or media, whether you're a producer, creator, performer, or someone who makes money in the entertainment industry like Brian was and Peter Cooper was recognized the value uh, of wrestling. 
So I think he became more of a fan of the business of the professional wrestling industry yeah. than he was a wrestling fan. Do you recall if they ever went to any shows like in person, like, you know, sometimes before you're going to get involved in a business like this and spend all this cash, you might want to go see what the live experience is all about. Right. I don't know if they did or not. Uh, I, and I don't know if they felt it was necessary. I, I don't know if perhaps they went to a couple WWE events. Uh, I don't think they went into any WCW events because once the look, once the merger was or nothing, the acquisition or the potential acquisition was announced, you're not, it's kind of weird to be floating around backstage sure. or walking through the offices. It's not really appropriate until the deal is consummated or closed. So I, I don't think they did, but if they did, they didn't tell me about it. It's just, fascinating. I would have talked him out of it, by the way, because it didn't represent what could have been. It just seems to me like if I'm going to put in a bunch of my own cash, I'm going to throw on a ball cap and go to a show, but I don't even know that a ball cap would have been necessary. It's not like wrestling fans or even the boys, so to speak, knew what the hell a Brian Badal looked like. Right. That's true. And, and maybe they did. Like I said, I mean, I, I'm probably like you, you know, if I was going to buy a restaurant, I'd, I'd like to go in there before I bought it, before anybody knew who I was, yeah. before anybody thought I was going to be their boss. And you know, see if my French fries are cold or my beer's warm. There you go. Or, there you go. You know, sure, I'd do that. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, what that back and forth process was like between Turner uh and now I guess Fusion Media. Uh, we haven't really drilled down on this. How many total investors do you think were involved to, to sort of pull together that sixty some odd million dollars? Are, are there gonna be ten potential owners? Are there oh no, I I think they were down to two or three. Okay. Okay. So when you're actually having conversations with the Turner side, are you involved in that piece because you're so familiar with them or are you staying out of that as well? No, but you know, because of the nature of the relationship, what they had fired me, essentially fired me, paid or played me, but same thing, um, in September. And now here I am in January trying to buy the company. So there was enough, there was enough, I've said this before, and it's been a long time since we talked about this, but that period of time in 98 that we started talking about in this, in this show, before I realized that Ted Turner was really losing control of his own company, I was walking around believing incorrectly, but believing completely that I always had the Ted Turner card in my back pocket. Because up until that point, starting from about 94, really, maybe 95, 95, starting at about 95, if I was pushing hard for something and somebody else was pushing hard against it, somebody above me was pushing hard against it, I'd keep pushing. I wouldn't, I, just because somebody was my superior or had a higher level of, of management uh, rank than I did, just because someone said no doesn't mean I would stop. Quite the opposite. I would just figure out a different way to go at it. And I'd keep pushing. I'd keep pushing. But I did that because I knew that eventually I was going to be sitting in front of Ted with whoever it is I was trying to convince to see things my way. And more often than not, if almost every time I won. So that gave me a fair amount of confidence and allowed me to believe in myself, not in an arrogant, fuck you, I know Ted kind of way, because I didn't know Ted. I mean, obviously I knew him, but 
you know, we were close, mean. right? You know, we didn't we didn't sit around and you know drink beer and tell me stories about sailing a yacht around the world, none of that. But I knew because of the confidence that I had developed in Ted, because of what I had achieved by '96 and '97, even early '98, I, 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 no doesn't exist in my vocabulary unless I'm saying it. If you say it, I don't hear you. We're going to, I'm going to keep plugging away until we get in front of Ted and then I'm going to win that. Well, that all changed <laughs> dramatically. And unfortunately I found out the hard way that that card wasn't worth anything anymore because Ted wasn't calling the shots. Man, if you're a business owner, you don't need us to tell you that running a business is tough, but you might be making it harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch those spreadsheets and all the old software you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need all in one place instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in revenue, save both time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com forward slash 83 weeks. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com forward slash 83 weeks. That's netsuite.com forward slash 83 weeks. When we were talking about potential ownership opportunities, the reason I brought that up is in as far as how many investors there were and who's talking to Turner is there's a report out there that TBS wanted to retain a minority interest in the company and they wanted to secure the long-term programming rights for the next 10 years. Now we know that's not how it winds up, but do you remember that ever being a deal point at all? Yeah, early on, that was an important thing for Turner Broadcasting because you know, people's look, people that you know pretend to know what was really going on or or did back then and wrote about it and chatted about it online um, couldn't have known. There was still early on. There was still this feeling that although WC, although Nitro and WCW had fallen precipitously from its highs in 96, 97, 98, it was still some of the most watched programming on the network. Right. So yeah, it it was losing money and Guy Evans could probably do a better job of explaining why on the books it was losing money um, better than I could. So I'm going to leave it that I'm going to leave it at that. Go by the book, but the, the, the programming was still recognized as being valuable programming. And I think there was also a feeling like, okay, we don't want this anymore, but we know how successful it was recently. And if these guys are going to take it and blow it up, we want to be in on that action. We don't want to just kick it out. We don't want to wash our hands of it. We don't, we don't want to deal with it anymore. We don't want it to be part of our portfolio, but if you make it successful, we want a piece of your money. That was the that was the negotiating posture going in from Turner Broadcasting's perspective. 
just so I'm clear these days, uh, wrestling companies make almost all of their money, or at least the largest portion from television rights fees. Would that have been a part of the way the deal was structured or were you really aiming to, Hey, we're going to go out there and sell our own ads and, and, and cover our own production costs and make a touring brand out of it. Or was there going to be some sort of, Hey, when we get ratings to a certain level, y'all got to start cutting some checks or what, what did that look like? Again, Conrad, I'm not avoiding it. And it's not that I have a bad memory, but I wasn't involved in those discussions. Okay. Right. I mean, I just don't know that level of detail. Now I can tell you, cause you, you kind of gave me a little bit of a snapshot there. I can tell you that definitively that the idea was that WCW was going to be a standalone company. We weren't going to be kind of in the ad sales business with Turner Broadcasting, for example. In fact, that was one of the things that I felt strongly about. Unfortunately, it didn't matter if I felt strongly or not because Brian agreed with me anyway, or Brian felt more strongly than I did about that. And that's, again, one of the reasons why Brian and Steve made so much sense is because they not only had relationships with investment bankers, sophisticated ones, they also had great relationships with advertisers and right. sponsors. They had a Rolodex of those relationships as well. So that was a big, I think that was a very attractive piece of the, the puzzle for Brian and Steve is that, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll exist on TNT and TBS. And yes, TNT and TBS will benefit in some way in that. Perhaps they would have retained some commercial inventory, for example. Likely that would have been the case. Some, not all. Maybe a very small portion of it, maybe a minute, maybe two minutes, whatever would have been negotiated out of 17 or whatever it is or was at the time. But the majority of that advertising would have been sold through the new co or new company, as they say. Um, so it would have been more standalone and not anything. It wouldn't have looked anything like a partnership. You've talked before, or maybe you haven't, but it's been out there before that there were discussions with FX do you remember how that came into play? If Turner was interested in the programming, why was a conversation necessary with FX or was it more about, Hey, we know Ted doesn't like Rupert Murdoch. So if we talk to a Fox station, maybe we can get a better deal here. Or can you walk us through that? Yeah. Oh, timing wise, timing wise. It must've been shortly after Brian and Steve and I, you know, formally kind of shook hands and said, okay, let's go do this. Brian would have reached out more than likely to Brad Siegel to initiate those conversations. And as they progressed from there, from a financial perspective, that's when Turner finance would have gotten involved in that right about the time that that <clears throat> uh, momentum started to be become developed on Brian's end of it <clears throat> before we knew early in the process before we knew that Turner would even be an option for distribution, meaning, sorry, before we knew that Turner Broadcasting would even be interested in carrying uh, Nitro and Thunder, I was already looking for an alternative. I like options. I tell this to my kids all the time. No matter what you do in life, always have options. Don't put all of your eggs into any one basket. And not think about your options while you're doing it. And early on, I wasn't sure where the TV side of this was going to land. So I reached out to a gentleman by the name of Peter Liguri. Peter Liguri was the head of FX. And I think I had pitched Peter 
because as you pointed out, you know, I, I, while I wasn't really producing a lot of television at that time, I had taken meetings as a part of other projects in, in and around Hollywood for Hollywood for a couple of years. And I think I had taken a meeting with Peter Liguri a year, six months before, and he expressed interest. I knew he was a wrestling fan or at least was interested in the space because of the business that was happening. And I, I had a meeting with Peter Liguri and, um, Kevin, uh, oh God, what was Kevin's last name? Uh, he was the head of uh, TNT when uh, AEW did the deal with them. Um, Kevin Riley. Yeah. Kevin Riley. Peter Liguri ran FX. Kevin Riley was right underneath him. And I took a meeting with both of them. And we started exploring the possibility of putting one, at least one of the show. My intent was to put Nitro on on fx and that's what the discussion was about early on in case we needed that as a distribution outlet you you said something there i wanted to just briefly touch on you had been taking some meetings in hollywood starting in you know late summer of 98 august 98 99 were you thinking about hey what am i going to do after wrestling it's not like i mean i just went on tv a few months ago and challenged vince mcmahon to a fight so that's probably out so what's next for me? Were you thinking even in the summer of 98 in in the fall of 98, Hey, TV might be what's next for me. And then actually started to explore that a year later in 99. No, not really. You know, in 97, 98 before, you know, I went home thinking about pulling the plug, uh, in August of 98 or whatever that was prior to that 96, 97, early 98. Um, I've been taking a lot of meetings about expanding WCW's footprint in entertainment. I say um, sitcoms, you know, if somebody had an idea for a sitcom, and by the way, I was represented at that time by the William Morris agency. Um, and I did that not so much to further my individual career, although that was, you know, it was just a smart move. The more you get yourself out there, the more people are aware of you, the more opportunities come your way. But I, I did it as much for WCW because in order to look, I, I realized early on, especially during the Time Warner, the early parts of Time Warner, and then certainly afterwards, one of my least favorite words in the world is synergy. Yeah. Because I remember listening to everybody, you know, when this whole Time Warner thing was happening, synergy this, synergy that. Gerald Levin, I was at a Christmas party at Terry McGurk's house. I was the token wrestling guy. And I was sitting, I was going to say for me to you, but for me to the screen, <laughs> I was standing, I was standing uh, next to Gerald Levin. When Gerald Levin toasted everybody, you know, all these Turner executives that were there for the Christmas party and how wonderful this merger is going to be and Ted standing right next to him. And Gerald Levin says, and it's because of the entrepreneurial spirit within the Turner organization and the steadfast strength, the deep roots of Time Warner. These two entities combined is going to be the best of both worlds. And I sucked it up like a fucking junkie with a needle in my arm because I believed that I didn't know any better. Until I did. But prior to that, I, my thought was, man, if we're going to grow WCW and I can't get people within Turner Broadcasting to answer the phone, oh. if I had an idea for an animation project, for example, and we were pitching it and we were excited about it and we had something, we had a really good pilot and I wanted to go pitch it to a sister company 
I would have a harder time getting that meeting than I would calling up my agent at William Morris and getting a, a, a meeting with uh, the, the greatest animation studio in Hollywood outside of Hanna-Barbera because we own them too. And I couldn't get a meeting there either. But it was just really crazy how difficult it was for me to get meetings within my own company, meaning Turner Broadcasting, or even if I could get the meeting to get any kind of real support. Because again, the overwhelming, or I should say overshadowing perspective with everybody I talked to was, yeah, I know it's really doing well, but I know this person that I report to hates this shit. So I'm not going to be, I couldn't get any support. So I started going outside of Turner Broadcasting to people like Peter Liguori and a host of other people that I had met over the years that were either pitching me ideas or I was pitching them ideas that would have been a WCW's opportunity outside of Turner Broadcasting. So that's how the whole me bouncing around Hollywood came about. It wasn't to further my own individual career. That would have happened anyway, just by proximity and being out there in the neighborhood, so to speak, knocking on doors. But my intent and my goal and the reason for doing it all was because I wanted to grow WCW outside of the walls of Turner Broadcasting. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you may feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't ever to the naked eye trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they are. And they can't stop quickly. And even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop over a mile to stop by that time. It's too late. And the result is a potential deadly crash. The point is you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly. And even if it sees you, it ends in disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way and you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't paid for by NHTSA. So we've talked for about an hour or so about the business side. Let's talk about the wrestling side, which is probably why most people are tuned into this episode. Yeah. We probably just put about 50,000 people to sleep. Hopefully none of them are driving. No, no, that's not true. We have the smartest audience in all of wrestling podcasts. That is true because we live to enlighten. (laughs) Let's talk about the wrestling side for a minute though. One of the things that has been discussed quite a bit, and I'm sure you would agree is that the overhead for WCW had simply gotten out of control. And so if you're going to get a hold of this thing, one of the first things you're going to need to do is sort of right size that overhead. And and that's a fancy speak for, we're going to have to cut some guys. And even the guys who are sticking around are probably going to have to take a cut because we've got to turn a profit for this thing. And we're going to be digging out of a hole from day one because we're going to have some debt to service and, and some money to pay back. So with all of that in mind, when the news comes out in, in January, and I think you guys do a conference call and I think there's even a press release that comes out coincidentally, uh, that press release and that conference call about you guys and fusion media buying WCW happens. I believe the same day that the, the sale is finally consummated and it's official. There's a merger between uh, AOL and time Warner. When all of that happens, how many of the, the quote unquote boys are calling you and are you calling any of them to sort of seek their counsel of, Hey, here's what we're trying to do. And here's what this would need to look like for you. 
And how could you navigate that where you've got a lot of guys who are used to, for lack of a better phrase, an inflated salary, and now they're going to work for a startup. I say all that because a lot of times when you go to work for a startup and you're a major player and they think you can be a major contributor, they're going to talk about equity. I'm, I'm curious if that ever becomes part of the conversation when you talk to the stings and the Hulk Hogan's and the Goldberg's and just talk me through the, the talent roster piece just for a moment here. You covered a fair amount of ground there. Good, great questions. Um, let's just one, bounce around, do it all. One, uh, just to break it down in terms of my conversations with talent that I either hoped or expected, um, uh, would remain part of WCW after the acquisition. We were very, I was very careful and I was cautioned by Brian. I, you know, Brian was a mentor to me during that process. He was leading this, he was leading it. I was, I was there to, I was a supporting cast member, not the star of the show. Brian was the star of the show. So Brian advised me early on not to engage in those conversations prematurely because we, we were still working out, although we had a business plan, we knew what we needed to do. We were still in the process of, you know, kind of analyzing what assets, including talent, were going to be necessary. So there was no definitive list of people that we were going to, you know, try to keep and not keep throughout the entire process. Okay. There were some, obviously, that we discussed and made some decisions about. But because it wasn't nailed down, because there were so many, for example, I'll give you an example of what I'm saying. So if we're going to go and make a $5 million offer to Bill Goldberg, as an example, I'm not saying that's the amount or would have been whatever, but I'm right. just given a number. We want Bill Goldberg, and we know over the course of three years, we can justify a $5 million contract over three years. And we know with Hulk Hogan, that might be worth $7 million because we know we can get some sponsorship over here, even though we can't, might not be able to make as much money off a of pay-per-view because of you know, the situation and the status of the talent, blah, 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 blah. We can afford, we can justify $7 million for this cat, but we can't justify the two of them together. Meaning until we know one, we don't know for sure about the other and vice versa. So there were targets, there were budgets, there were thoughts, there were no decisions in play. And because of that, Brian advised me not to engage in those conversations. So while I did talk about, you know, I certainly DDP because we were, we were buddies, right? I could not talk to him about it, but I also didn't give him a lot of the detail because I'm funny that way. If something should be kept confidential, no matter what it is, if it's a personal thing or a business thing, I'm pretty good at keeping things confidential. I don't like to get caught in the middle of shit. I don't like to fuck things up. You know, I have a bad memory. I've always had a bad memory because I'm always going in a million different directions at the same time. And sometimes, you know, when you step over the line and you start having discussions with people about things you probably shouldn't have and you forget about it, it can come back and bite you in the ass. So I just avoid it. By not having conversations. You still so do I that today. I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to tell a funny story. The first time you went down to Jacksonville for an AEW show, it starts with Cody texting me saying, Hey, big C, uh, can I have Eric Bischoff's cell phone number? So I know, cause I, I give him your number 
And so then you and I talked that weekend, we're not recording. And I said, Hey man, what day are you going to Jacksonville? And you say, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I gave him your number. I know it's fine. Where are you going? You're like, I'm not supposed to say anything. I don't even, I have to go. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, I, I, I mean, I, that's just the way I am. That's and respectful. Because I'm I like afraid it. I'll forget that I said something to somebody or whatever, but I just, so I would talk, you know, DDP, sure. I'd talk to DDP and I'd give him some inside information that I might not share with other people, but it wasn't financial information and it wasn't decisions about contracts or amounts or anything like that. We didn't talk about those things. And to his credit as a human being, DDP knew that about me and wouldn't have asked or expected me to tell him. So it was very easy for me to be around certain people that knew me well and, 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 and I knew well, uh, same with Hulk Hogan. You know, I went down to Orlando and hung out with, uh, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Cause I wanted to see where their heads were at. There was, you know, we, we had all gone through a lot. Some of it really, really great. And some of it really sucky together. And I needed to know where their heads were at. And particularly in the case of Scott Hall, I needed to know where he was at because of the issues that he was having at the time. So I had engaged in some conversations, but not when it came to, okay, how much are we going to pay this guy and whether or not we're going to keep this guy. I didn't have any of those conversations with anybody other than Brian and Steve. So when you start actually having conversations with the talent, let's talk about the roster for a moment about who you might want to have involved, who maybe you wouldn't want to have involved. Uh, the roster was, was pretty wide and varied, but you mentioned very briefly there Goldberg, he's one of the biggest names, you know, but you've also said that you had challenges working with his agent at different times. Would he have been a part of the relaunch and what might that have looked like? He would have been, hopefully he would have been, I mean, the, 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 Brian was very big on, on Bill Goldberg. So Steve, so was I. I knew the reality of it. Brian and Steve didn't because they didn't have to negotiate with him um, or, or, or his manager. Um, but it was like, Hey, if we, if we can get bill within the, the budget that we've established, if we can afford this, knowing it was going to be a lot, he was bill would have been one of the highest paid people on the roster clearly. But if it got ridiculous because people overvalued, their participation or their management did, then we were willing to walk away too. I, I, I felt strongly about bill as in a positive way uh, about having him on the roster, but I also knew that there was a good chance they were going to overplay their hand and we had to accept that and move on. If that was the case in terms of creative plans, I know that's like a big thing that people want to know about what would have actually happened. I can't tell you that because we didn't really have creative laid out. We had a strategy for creative to be laid out in the future. We had a direction or I did, I should say I had a direction in terms of where I wanted to go because Brian and Steve didn't want to get involved on the creative side. I think Brian would have liked to watch the process and become familiar with the process is the guy who would have been really running the company as a CEO. He would not have wanted a part of his business that he didn't understand. Brian is way too brilliant for that and successful, but it's not like he had ideas about it. Well, what if this guy goes over? What if we make this guy a world heavyweight champion or whatever that would have been that that was pretty much where my role came in. 
Well, talk to me a little bit no, about. There was no storyline plans, bro. Is what I'm really trying to say, bro. Did I just fucking you, say, yeah, bro? You said, bro. So well, since we're talking about it, would Russo have been a part of your creative structure? I mean, you said we didn't really have plans, but we knew the direction. We knew the structure. What would that have looked like creatively? Did you have people in mind for your creative? Let me Russo question first. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you've never accused me of being too succinct, meaning short. Oh, you nailed it right there, buddy. But that's a fucking no. Okay. Got it. One, big fella. Got it. Um, oh, you know, I, I I'm going to, I don't want to name names because I could be wrong. <laughs> okay, well, let me ask this one. Kevin Sullivan was there for some of your greatest successes. Would you have had a conversation with Kevin? Yes. Uh, you know, there's other people who were on the committee, but Kevin is, is often the guy who gets a lot of the credit. Um, is there anybody else that, you know, from the, from the office standpoint that you're like, man, I really want, if if we're going to do it, I want to do it with that guy. You know, Kevin would have definitely been one. I know this is going to, you're going to probably swallow your tongue when I say this. I would have looked hard at Terry Taylor. Wow. I've had issues with Terry since the day I've known him. And I'm sure Terry's changed like we all have, including myself. I'm sure he's not the same guy today that he was, whatever, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But Terry was one of the most randomly brilliant people that I've worked with. And when I say brilliant, I don't mean that he come up with these magic ideas or really big ideas that no one else could have thought of, but Terry had a way of taking an idea. And as you massage that idea and it moves around the room and it changes shape and energy. And all of a sudden what started out as a round ball kind of gets shaped into a pyramid as ideas often do. Now, I don't think anybody comes out and says, I have an idea. Let's do this and have it end up being exactly that, right? whatever this is. It's always an evolution of an idea. Sometimes an idea starts out as one thing, ends up as something completely different, and you can't even remember where the idea started. That's the nature of collaboration sometimes in great ideas. They just, boom, they happen, they appear, and they change just as quickly. But Terry was always one of the people in the room that as much as I had issues with certain aspects of Terry's behavior, um, professionally, uh, he was that guy that every once in a while, when he needed it would go, Whoa, 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 instead of doing that, what if we did this? Sometimes it was that nuanced. Sometimes it was really not so nuanced. It was a big idea or big perspective on an idea that made the idea better. So he was a nuisance. He was a, he, he, he was, Terry was a, I say a nuisance. I like being around Terry. He, he always did make me laugh, by the way. He was, he was fun energy to have in a room most of the time. But I also knew that he was a liability because he couldn't keep his freaking mouth shut. And I knew that he was a leak, but sometimes, you know, he can't, I couldn't prove it. If I could have proved it, I would have made an example out of it a really, really ugly example out of him 
or anybody else that I could have proved that was leaking what I considered to be proprietary and confidential in, information. And it was not just because I considered it as such, it was intellectual property that was being shared in a very, very inappropriate way. I suspected, I had strong suspicions. I had confirmations of my suspicions from other people who were, who were closer to it than I was, but I couldn't prove it. And as a result, I kept Terry in the room, even though I suspected him because I valued his perspective, however occasional as it, it may have been, I valued that input more than I felt concerned about the fact that he may be a source for information that he shouldn't have been a source for, if that makes sense. Like his, his, his perspective occasionally was so valuable that I gave that, you know, a scale of one to 10, I weighed that at a 10, whereas my suspicions based on the fact that he was leaking proprietary information and, and by the way, making shit up, that was a detriment. That was a, that was exposure, but I, I would value that loss, if you will, uh, or the cost um, at about a six. So as long as the, the value on the yeah. input side outweighed the value on the output side, he survived. And that's really was my relationship with Terry and how I looked at him. And I probably would have had a conversation with him because that kind of perspective was valuable. Terry could be really, really spot on about something that even in a room full of very experienced people, uh, wrestlers, you know, and people who had good ideas would sometimes miss and Terry would pick up on it. He had a good say. Terry had a good handle on psychology. That's probably why I, I put up with Terry. When I say put up, it's probably why I worked with Terry as long as I did, because I did value his perspective when it came to psychology. Okay. Let's just be honest with each other. If you're listening to this, there's a 98% chance you're a dude. And there's also a pretty good chance. If you go to your significant other and you say, honey, I think we should refinance with this wrestling podcast guy. She's going to look at you like, huh? And I get that, but let me just put a little bug in your ear. Cruise on over and check out the reviews for us. Here's what people are saying. Christina in Lancaster, Ohio gave us a five-star review. She says the team was extremely responsive, knowledgeable, helpful with all our questions and time. The process was very quick and simple, and we were shocked at how easily everything came together. Thank you for that review, Christina. Here's what Brian in Moorhead, Minnesota said. If you want to refinance, choose these guys. They walked me through every step and they were great to work with. Here's what Lewis said in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Great communication, very friendly and knowledgeable staff. Here's what Lauren said in Monroe, Connecticut. Conrad made the process easy and was a pleasure to work with. Here's what Bailey said in Maryville, Tennessee. I was looking to refinance for my mortgage. First family made it easy and efficient. I got a great rate and I was very pleased with the outcome. What about Jeffrey in Michigan? He gave us a five-star review and he wrote, everyone was helpful and patient with some of our local lenders, not wanting to help find the missing documents. I get it. It's a wrestling podcast, but he's saving us money on our mortgage. You really trust this process. The reviews don't lie. Five-star review after five-star review. We make it fast. We make it easy and it's no cost or obligation. Give us a shot to earn your business. I'm telling you, you'll be glad you did, especially if you like keeping more of your own money. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? Hurry to savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. 
Get yourself a quick quote right now. Interest rates are on the rise and you don't want to miss it. Waiting will only cost you money. Hurry, save with Conrad.com. What about uh, Zane Bresloff? Would you have tried to engage him? Not on a creative level. No, no. I just mean as far as who would you want on the team? Oh, Zane would have definitely been there. Zane, and believe me, when I, you know, I kind of laughed off Zane in, in a creative room. Zane, as a human being, his personality, he would have hated being in that room, by the way. That's probably why I laughed. It's just he would, his head would have exploded because being in a collaborative, creative environment is not nearly as much fun as people think it is. Trust me when I tell you, it is, can be, has been a painful, torturous existence and some people are really good at it and and can can play in that arena and 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 survive and prosper in that arena and most people can't zane would have been in the most people can't category just because of his personality and and just knowing me knowing what that creative process really looks like and what the perception of that creative process might look like to somebody who's never done it. Zane would have, I would have bounced ideas off Zane. I would have used Zane as a confidant or, or because he was, we were very, very close um, on a personal level as well as a professional level. Um, I would have used Zane as a sounding board, but I would not have put him in a room. Just think, I was tr- trying to ask about the the staff because I know there's a lot of folks behind the scenes that you probably saw a lot of value in. G- guys like Bob Ryder, Jeremy Borash, would they have come along for the ride? Bob Ryder in a role, Jerry Bo- Borash not so much. I didn't know Jeremy. You know, I, I I I can't. You know, I couldn't have put a value on someone that I really didn't work with or know. I mean, I worked with him. I was in proximity of him, but I didn't work directly with him at least not on a level where I could kind of get a feel for what his value may be. So definitely not Jeremy. Um, and not because obviously he had, you know, it would have been a bad call on my part clearly because Jeremy has proven himself to be a great asset. Right. And still is to the WWE. So this is not a knock on Jeremy. It's just a knock on the fact that I didn't have a relationship with him and didn't know what he was potentially capable of. It- um, it's out there that you, you had Johnny Ace sort of be your, uh, liaison for the locker room in, but during this transition period, would you have found a spot for jo- a permanent spot for Johnny Ace? Had oh, that? absolutely. I brought Johnny in, okay. you know, I brought Johnny into WCW. I brought Johnny in from, uh, all Japan, I believe where he was uh, a booker and I brought Johnny in because I couldn't get Pat Patterson. I brought Johnny in because everybody I talked to at the time, this is before I left. Uh, in September, but I brought Johnny in or shortly after, I can't remember when shortly after, um, you know, I, I brought Johnny in, uh, when I asked around and said, look, we need somebody that really understands finishes. Our finishes suck. I don't have that talent. Nobody I'm working with currently in this room. When I brought Johnny in has that talent, at least not to the degree that we need it. And since we can't get Pat Patterson, who can we get? And the feedback I was getting from everybody that I talked to, the, who I had respect for and really knew, um, Johnny's name kept coming up. So I brought Johnny in. And Johnny would have definitely been um, a big part of not only creative, but he would have been, 
I hate to say a right-hand man, but he would have been a partner in, in running the operation for sure. Let's talk about some other names that fans are really familiar with dusty Rhodes. I think at this point he was doing some backstage stuff. Of course he appeared on camera, but I think he was a big part behind the scenes for WCW creatively for a long time. What was your relationship like with dusty? Would there have been a spot on the bus for him? Absolutely. A spot on the bus at the front of the bus, uh, run next to me and creative, uh, dusty can't say nothing, but you know, dusty had some pretty far out ideas. Dusty lived in another world creatively. He, he was a visionary and sometimes with visionaries, the ideas don't get fleshed out as well as they should. Um, Sometimes you're so ahead of yourself that it's hard for other people to catch up. That's where Dusty was. But the magic, and this is the fun part about working with somebody like Dusty. Let me sum it up. You can slow a fast horse down, but you can't speed a slow horse up. That's Dusty. Dusty was a fucking creative thoroughbred. But sometimes you had to slow him down. Sometimes he was so far ahead. He was running two races ahead from where we are right now. And you had to kind of bring him back to center. But the value of those big ideas, even though the idea as it's pointed, as it's presented from someone like Dusty at that time, you would go, wow, that's kind of out there, but I really like this. Kind of like the collaboration, you know, the the evolution of an idea and the value of having somebody like a Dusty Rhodes and Dusty in particular, or someone that had the same way of thinking as a Dusty Rhodes is that you need those big wacky ideas. You need those. It doesn't mean you're going to do them all or any of them, but those big ideas can often, you can often slow that horse down and bring it into the track that you're on. And win races with it. So Dusty would have been right there with me. What about, uh, your own again, off again relationship with the nature boy, Ric Flair. Would you have uh, had him on camera behind the scenes or just based on your relationship at the time? Would that have probably have made more sense than just, uh, part ways? No, cause I, I never. Look, I was angry in the moment. I was angry at the situation. Um, but I wasn't angry at Rick. I was angry at the situation. And I was angry at the way Rick conducted himself from time to time during our conflict, going to the press, for example. I understand it. Smart move. Fucking hated it. Right. Because I like to keep my shit to myself. You and I are going to have an argument and we're going to debate something. And we have a, we have a conflict, you know, between you and I business-wise, we're going to work it out business-wise. We're not going to go out and I'm not going to go out and talk about it socially. And I know neither would you. Right. That's the way I like to keep my business. Um, so, you know, there were certain things that Rick did that, you know, just, I was angry at that, but I never got angry at Rick. He, he won't understand. I'm not even sure I understand that, by the way, but um, it is what it is. I would have wanted to keep Rick on the roster. I, I don't think Rick in management would ever be a good idea, 
Rick Rick doesn't want to be in management. Rick's not cut out to be in management. Rick is cut out to be Rick Flair on camera or the face of the company or someone who could go out and interact with very high level executives in a social environment, like a Super Bowl, for example. And, um, well, for the most part, represent your company really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just got to, you got to know when to turn it off. You got to know. When, and look, and Rick knew, I mean, Rick has a great instinct, man. He could, he could schmooze with the best of them. And if Very he much. could zero in on somebody that really needed smoozing and he knew how to smooze them, you'd walk away with a big fat Rolodex, not Rolex, Rolodex. Uh, Rick was great at that. So I definitely would have wanted Rick to be a part of the company, but not in a management position. Let's talk about another big name. That was sort of a, the franchise for WCW sting. What was your feelings on sting moving forward? Would he have been near the top of your roster? Do you think at the top, if not the top near the top, if not the top of the roster, what about, uh, well, a more controversial figure. He, uh, he was one of the guys who for better or worse was criticized for uh, playing the, the game with Turner within Turner, Kevin Nash, would Kevin Nash have had a role backstage on camera, both neither. Uh, definitely on camera because I did talk, you know, when I said I went down to Orlando to, to do a temperature check, as I call it on Scott and Kevin, the reason I went there is because I wanted Scott and Kevin. I didn't go there thinking I didn't want them to be a part of the team. I went there thinking I wanted them to be, I just need to make sure that their heads are on straight. When we're talking about the, the financial aspect, I do want to ask those guys are sort of. Uh, they've painted themselves to be, uh, the two who, who made it to where everyone in wrestling could get guaranteed money. And so they had, I don't, I don't think Scott was there at the time, but Kevin Nash had guaranteed money, but he also probably knew, you know, this might be a chance for me to do something long-term with wrestling. If he could sort of hitch his saddle to whatever you're creating. Did you have a discussion about that or, or did you come away from that meeting thinking, well, he's going to sit it out and just get his full payday. And then we can have a conversation. No, no, I didn't think that at all. I, I think Kevin wanted to be active. Kevin wanted to be a part of the team. That was the impression that I, it was a conversation we had, but I want to make something clear, you know, I, and I know you said these guys have portrayed themselves or painted themselves. I think was originally used as being the reasons why they were guaranteed contracts. I don't know where the fuck that came from their mouths. I, I came to WCW in 1991 as a talent on a guaranteed contract. No, right. by the way, Sting had a guaranteed contract. Lex Luger had a guaranteed contract. When Ric Flair came back, he had a guaranteed contract. And that was a long time before uh, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash came back in 96. Right. So I don't know where that narrative started or how it's been distorted over the years, but guaranteed contracts existed in WCW before I did. So we think they're going to be receptive to doing something, but we got to talk about the biggest name in the history of the business. Hulk Hogan at this point has been on the sidelines for years. Uh, he left not years, but months he left after, you know, that whole debacle with Russo and Jarrett and bash at the beach, 2000, uh, there's been a lot of litigation and now you're trying to put the band back together and WCW experienced its greatest success when you and you and him were in sync. What was your conversation like with Hogan about a potential relaunch? 
Um, it was a done deal. I mean, it was a done deal without the terms of the deal being figured out yet. He was committed to coming on board. Uh, by that time, you know, Hulk and I had developed enough of a personal relationship that it kind of superseded the, the business relationship. And he, he was always honest with me, you know, and I, I, I know, again, the narrative um, about Hulk, whatever, I know the real guy. Right. <clears throat> and it wasn't a question of if, it was a question of how and when. And the how and when of it hadn't been figured out, but the if of it had. He was going to come back. We just had to figure out how and when. And he wasn't that he wasn't as greedy as people like to think he was or would have been. It would have been that would have been one of the easier deals I did, actually. Would he have been a guy you would have had an equity conversation with? That would have been a Steve question. Um, I never had any of those conversations with anybody. My feeling at the time, and probably sitting here now more that more so, is that my experience has been talents never been interested in the upside of anything. They want the cash now. Okay. That that's my experience. Now, obviously, Vince McMahon has had different experience because he operated in a different kind of revenue model or financial model. Um, but in my experience. It was like, mm, no, give me full boat on my salary, and I'm not going to take less salary for some equity. Let's talk a little bit about Scott Hall. Um, he was a guy who, you know, had obviously parted ways with the company. If you were to engage a conversation further with him and this thing come around and it becomes a deal, were you worried that you might set a precedent if it went poorly, or would you have had parameters in place? We would have had parameters in place. There, there, there definitely would have been um, very strict parameters and ways out and incentives. Uh, it, it would not have been a repeat of past performances and conditions going back to, you know, the injuries and the drug issues and the no-shows and all the, the, the drama that I had experienced previously that that would not have reoccurred back again this week to say that now is the time to make the jump and become a part of the ad free shows community. We've talked about podcasts on video, live interactive experiences, bonus content like the mailbag shows with Mike Kyoto and Gerald Briscoe and so much more. But ad free shows is the only place you can find the exclusive series conversations with Conrad. The recently released part two of the Jim Crockett conversation is both powerful and insightful as we hear the thoughts from one of the true pioneers in professional wrestling. Is there anything you want to share with our audience today? Sort of final words. Well, if I if if I've given you any pleasure in life, I'm glad. Cherish the, the ones around you. That's what's important. Absolutely. This interview would be Jim Crockett's most in-depth and sadly the final recorded conversation before his passing. It's can't miss and cements his legacy as both a wrestling promoter and a loving family man. So make the decision. Become a member of ad-free shows and enjoy this and so many other exclusive shows and events over at adfreeshows.com. 
So let's bounce around, talk about another name. When, uh, the sun finally sets on, um, WCW for the world title, it's Booker T and Scott Steiner. Let's start with Steiner first. Would he have had a spot on the new team? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've said this before. I think Steiner or Scott Steiner was just really finding his character, uh, and expanding it, you know, for so long, Scott Steiner was, you know, a physical specimen, toughest, toughest man in the locker room, you know, uh, excellent technician in the ring, but his, he didn't have much of a character beyond the physical presentation. And just over time, Scott found his character, kind of like Steve Austin did. You know, Steve Austin was always Steve Austin, but when he found Stone Cold Steve Austin, his promos changed, his demeanor changed, the relationship to the audience changed with it in a massive way. Scott Steiner was a little bit like that, not to the obviously not to the same magnitude as Stone Cold Steve Austin, but there was enough of an evolution in Scott. Steiner's character or Scott's Rex Steiner's relationship to the character that it really got deeper and more entertaining. You know, he, he, some of his promos, instead of, you know, trying to cut a promo and kind of stepping on uh, all over his own words and kind of coming off a little clumsy, still entertaining, but kind of clumsy and weird. Yeah. All of a sudden Scott started having fun with that and it became part of his character in a fun, entertaining way. Cause he embraced it instead of trying to overcome it. He just said, fuck it. I'm going to roll with this. At least that's my impression. And he became, I mean, to this day, some of those Scott Steiner promos are, you know, cult like gifts. I mean, it's, it was interesting, but yeah, Scott definitely would have been a part of the team. What about Booker T Booker T was the, uh, the final WCW world champion on nitro. And we know he had probably the most success of anyone on this roster. Once he went to the WWF, did you see him that way? here at the end. Yeah. I mean, my, my relationship with Booker as a talent, uh, I've always been, I, I was in the very beginning. I was throughout his career with me at WCW and I would have been, uh, he would have definitely been right up there at the top of the roster. No, no question about that. Was DDP going to be a given just like Hulk Hogan was. Yep. I thought that, that was probably an easy one. Not, not only because he was a valuable character that represented WCW because he had been positioned at such a high level for a couple of years previous to this point. Um, but, you know, having people you can depend on, you know, every it's great working with everybody when everything's great, but you got to have some people that you can have a great time working with when things aren't so great. Right. And that you could depend on And Paige would have been one of those people. We know that uh, Ray Mysterio is going to become a big star in the WWF as well. Were you sold on him being a big part of your new relaunch as well? Cruiserweights in general would have been a big part and Ray Mysterio. Definitely. Let's talk about some other names because I think it sort of gets forgotten that under the roster of, or on the roster under the employee of WCW, when they close the doors, AJ styles, Christopher Daniels, um, what's going to go on to become one half of America's most wanted. One of the more important tag teams in the formation of TNA wildcat, Chris Harris, you've got a lot of really young up and coming talent and supposedly, uh, Eric, you know, had Bischoff or pardon me, had Heyman been able to land a television deal 
for ECW, he had tryouts and, 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 and matches scheduled for talent like CM Punk. So it's incredible to think about all those guys over on the ECW side of things who may have been available. And when we talk about ECW and a potential relaunch, the name that we hear over and over was you were really high on Rob Van Dam. Can you set the record straight on that? Was I high on Rob Van Dam? Isn't that funny playing words? Um, I was excited about Rob. You know, Rob and I had talked previously. I loved his work. Um, I did watch Rob's, you know, Robinson tapes in Terry Taylor would, you know, show me tapes of new talent that would come in all the time or Kevin Sullivan. And I always loved watching Rob's stuff, you know, because I love, you know, I, I was a martial artist. I love great, you know, well-executed, legitimate looking, not some fucking green belt YMCA looking leg slapping bullshit. But I like the, I, I like people that can, you know, it's one of the reasons I was a big fan of Ernest Miller. There's a cat that's too, it's a cat. <laughs> that's funny. Um, there's a guy that's, you know, 235, 245 pounds that could, you know, jump and kick with accuracy and speed and, dev- and a devastating look, you know, that, that didn't hurt people. Yeah, this is a hard thing to do. And Rob, although, you know, I'm not so sure Rob was as good at not hurting people as Ernest was. No, no offense, Rob. We know it's a shoot. Um, I was a big fan of his work. He had a great look. He had a great character. And I loved the martial arts component of his presentation. Made him different, unique. It's been written that he was going to be one of the top stars. Would he have been up there, you know, in that sting echelon? Would you have featured him as a main event level star? Top five? Yeah. And when you say top five, because you're not going to have the same guy wrestling every main event sure. every week and every month and every year. So you need five or eight, you know, of, you know, top guys on your roster, so to speak, I hate to use that term, but, you know, top talent that you can interchangeably work in and out on a consistent basis throughout every year, two years um, as your main event guy, you know? So yeah, actually, yeah. And actually, definitely Rob would have been in that category. A couple other names that get bandied about as being future potential stars had WCW continued Mike awesome, Sean O'Hare comments on those two. Not so sure about Mike. Awesome. Mike awesome would have definitely had a spot on the roster because he was a great worker and he had a great look. Um, he never struck me. Um, rest of soul. I'm sorry, Mike, if this is offensive to you even now, but, um, he never struck me as the guy that could really own the room with the mic in his hand. When I say own the room, I mean the big room, the audience. He just couldn't grab him. Um, but his work was great, and he was capable of doing a lot of different things. Who would have had a spot on the roster? Um, who was the other talent you mentioned? Uh, Sean, Sean O'Hare. Sean O'Hare would have been a project for me, one that I would, I was very excited about. I think Sean O'Hare more than anybody else of that group that came in during that time in 99 and 2000 or end of 98, 99 Sean O'Hare was a guy that could have, he could have, he could have been, he could have been the guy. Not, not right away. It may have taken a couple of years, but positioned properly and groomed properly. 
and by grooming properly, sometimes that just means not overexposing. Right. Way. Um, but had he been protected along the way and nurtured and taught how to really become a character and get really comfortable with a microphone in his hand so that he can do something other than the physical presentation, but also have a great narrative to support that. Uh, I think, I think Sean O'Hare could have been one of the bigger stars of, of his era. Let's talk about a few more names. This we might categorize as a little more controversial disco, whether in, in front of the camera or behind the scenes, you know, this is hard, you know, this kind of a show because part of me is wants to respond the way I feel right now, but I've got to remember what would have happened had that really the sale gone through. What was my frame of mind and perspective then? And they're completely different frames of mind, by the way, I think that's only natural. I would like to think, although I doubt it's true that I would have seen the potential for Glenn Gilberti or Disco Inferno behind the scenes, because Glenn does have, forget what you know about the character, forget even what you know about some of the things you hear him say on Conan's podcast, forget about that. And you sit with the guy, Glenn Gilberti, and you break down story, you break down character. He's a smart dude. He may not, he may not come off that way or, and part of it is because he's entertaining himself and he's entertaining his audience. Yes. But when you sit down and have a serious conversation with a guy like Glenn um, or with Glenn in particular, there's value there. Now that's me today. Me 20 years ago, not so probably wouldn't have seen it. Okay. And probably would have looked at disco as a good on camera character. Cause he had a good, strong comedic character and he was comfortable doing it and he could work with anybody and he could shift gears and be serious if necessary as a serious character, or he could succeed as a comedic character. That's value. Kurt Henning is a, is a perfect example of the highest level of that. Kurt Angle could put on a, here's an Olympic champion that could stretch everybody in the locker room twice before he broke a sweat, but he's perfectly comfortable coming out on camera with a tiny little kid's baseball cap or a cowboy hat on, making a complete goof of himself because he had that much confidence and range. Now, Glenn Gilberti, Disco Inferno's not on the Kurt Henning level, but it's the same asset. It's the same type of asset. You need that person that can shift gears and, and be, be comedic. If you need a comedic character, because that's a very unique skill set that require, first of all, it requires a tremendous amount of self-confidence to go out there and make fun of yourself or make a fool of yourself while you're trying to entertain the audience. You have to really know who the fuck you are in order to do that, have fun doing it and make sure and, and making sure it works. If you're not a hundred percent confident in who you are, you're going to suck at that because you're going to be inhibited and you're not going to really perform to the, to the level you need to, to suck in the audience. But you take that same character that has the ability to get thrown into a real life storyline or life life storyline and make it believable. That's a valuable asset. And Glenn Gilberti was that asset. What about Lex Luger? Yeah. By that time, Lex had really won me over. You know, I got through whatever baggage I had about Lex Luger as a performer. I had really gotten over that. I was probably still 
still had some misgivings about him on a personal level because of things that have been happening, you know, but um, yes, your boy still Buff- very valuable as a character, by the way, I, I, I want to give a shout out to Lex Luger, one of the most positive people that I talk to and I follow him on social media. I encourage you to do as well. He's a very, very positive dude and think the world of him. Your boy, Buff Bagwell. I think I was getting a little tired of the Buff Bagwell, not a Marcus, not, not a Marcus, but a of character. the Buff Bagwell character. It needed, it needed a rest and it needed to be repackaged. I, I just got shutters thinking about it. It's because it got shoved down here. It's not Buff's fault. It's not Marcus's fault. But that character needed to change. I was I was way the fuck over the Buff Bagwell character. Not Marcus, the character. Just wanted to take a second to tell you about all the great shirts available at ericbischoff.com. If you haven't checked it out in a while, we've added a lot of new shirts. You can check out all the 83 Weeks gimmicks at boxagimmicks.com. Pick up an 83 Weeks coffee mug, get a know-what-you-don't-know shirt, or grab a poster of Dave Silva's cover art. Whatever you need to show off your 83 Weeks love, visit ericbischoff.com and boxagimmicks.com. I have a feeling I know the answer to the next one, and it's probably similar to the same answer here. Would Tony Schiavone have been a part? It felt like when you launched nitro, you thought this guy has been the voice of this thing for too long. I need to switch it up. You put yourself in that seat. Eventually Tony gets the seat back, but a lot of people had been critical of Tony's final days in WCW and Tony himself says I gave up and I didn't care and it all sucked and I hated it. I was miserable. I was ready for it to end. That definitely came through at different times on his commentary. When you compare it to his older stuff these days, of course, he's having a blast. Would you have still went with Tony because he was the WCW brand or are the rumors true that you were interested in having a conversation with Joey styles about voicing your new version of WCW? Both, both, both things are true. I would have wanted absolutely needed and wanted to keep Tony on the team um, behind the scenes and in front of the camera. But I was also interested in Joey Styles. We would have had four hours of TV to do in prime time. There was plenty of room for great announcers. It wasn't, well, if we're going to bring in Joey, we're not going to use Tony. If we're going to use Tony, we're not going to bring in Joey. That wasn't it at all. You know, if you go back and you look at some of the experiments, and they were experiments. Um, they are live on the air experience that we did with Nitro. And oftentimes that shit worked. It rocked the world. And some of it we're still seeing today as people emulate what we created with Nitro back in 1995 and 96. And some of it sucked. Some of it didn't work. Um, but I, you know, you go back and look at some of the things that I did, I would change announced teams out. You know, one announced team in the first hour, one announced team on the second hour. Was it because I thought one team was better than the other team? It was, they're two different teams and therefore, therefore it felt like two different shows to a degree. Therefore you didn't lose viewers because they've been hearing the same voice over and over and over and over and over and over again, sometimes talking about some of the very same things in a different way over and over and over again. So changing up the chemistry and the energy and just the delivery between two sets of announcers helped make nitro feel like a two hour show that was over with in 45 minutes, as opposed to a two hour show that felt like it was a four hour show. 
So there would have been plenty of room for announcers. And I would likely would have stuck because it was a, was a very successful strategy that had never been done before. One more thing that Nitro did that nobody else had ever done before. Changing up your announcers in a two-hour show is, I, in my opinion, still the right thing to do today. Because it you don't feel like you're watching the same thing for so long because you're hearing. Announcers are such a big part of the show. Announcers get more camera time than anybody or audio time, sometimes camera time, but your, 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 your announcers have a stronger, larger, more consistent press presence on your show than any other piece of talent. And sometimes that works against you. When you move from a one hour show to a two hour show, now you're starting to tread, you know, dangerous water to go from a two hour throw show to a three hour show. With the same two announcers, you're asking for failure, or at least you're asking not to be as successful as you could possibly be, because it's just too much for the audience to listen to. So, so let's talk about those two sets of announcers. So Joey Styles is going to be one, we think. Joey Styles, Don Callis. Okay. So, conversations so, with Don Callis. So Joey Styles and Don uh, Callis become one of the hours and the other hour is Tony Schiavone and well, who else is Mike Tenace here? Hey, here's one. Uh, I don't know that we've even talked about this. Lawler just quit and, and left WCW left the WWE. Did you ever have a conversation with Lawler? I did indeed. What? Jerry called me. I remember where I, cause I had never had a conversation with Jerry. Um, I mean, I certainly knew of Jerry held him in high regard, but I didn't, I had never even said hello to him. We hadn't crossed paths. We haven't talked on the phone, nothing. And I was, uh, I was in Los Angeles. Actually, it was right down Rodeo drive in Wilshire. Actually, I was coming down. Rodeo. I, remember, I don't know why I remember these things. I always remember where I am when I have a conversation on the phone. If I have a conversation face to face nine times out of 10, I can't really pinpoint it. But I was, it was like 5.30 at night. I was finishing up a meeting. I was on my way either to meet someone for dinner or just to go home. I don't remember which. So I, was, I had an apartment in Santa Monica at the time. And I'm driving. And I get a phone call from Jerry Lawler. And obviously, I recognized his voice instantly. And he, we chatted for a few minutes. And he let me know he was free and heard that I had something going and wanted to know if I was interested. And I said, absolutely, Jerry. Let's follow this up. Nothing ever came of it, but yeah, definitely Jerry would have been a, I don't, I don't know what I would have done with him. Oh my god, We would have done something with him for sure. Can you imagine him and Tony Schiavone instead of Jr. and the King, it was Tony and Lawler. That would have been tremendous. It would have been great. Oh, what could have been? Oh, what could have been? Well, the other thing I want to touch on before we start to wind this down, uh, allegedly you want to go dark for a bit. So there would have been, you know, uh, a stoppage no content at all for a while. And then you're going to come back and relaunch at a pay-per-view, not on TV, but at a pay-per-view and supposed supposedly, uh, it was supposed to be May 6, 2001 to the point where there were even articles out there uh, and, and advertisements for it. And it was promoted as the big bang. And this was sort of the unveiling of the new WCW. And I think it's even out there that you had buildings booked, uh, for follow-up shows but the, the talk had always been, you ultimately wanted to wind up in Las Vegas. So let's talk about two things there. One, were you going to go dark Two, 
was the relaunch going to happen on pay-per-view and not, not happen on TV and, and three, are you going to Vegas? Yes, yes. And yes. Okay. The trifecta of affirmative answers right here on 83 weeks where we live to enlighten every single week. But yeah, no, the, yes, I wanted to go dark. I petitioned for the longer we could stay dark, the better, but there were some realities there. You know, there were some cash flow realities that, that won the argument. Um, so yeah, I think it was in May. We were going to launch on a pay-per-view and let me tell you why. My hope was by going dark, the absence makes the heart grow fonder factor would have started to kick in to a degree. In my opinion, if we would have stayed dark till the fall, it would have been even better, but that just wasn't practical from a cash flow perspective. And there were issues with TNT and programming and things like that. TNT was willing to go for a while, but they couldn't go for too long without consistent programming that would get consistent numbers in that spot. So it was the compromise was May. Yes, I wanted to do it on pay-per-view. And my reason for it is because we would have had sufficient promotional time on the TNT network on you know promoting that pay-per-view. So the awareness, the buzz, the energy, the anticipation that we would have been able to build promoting that pay-per-view, not only on television, but within the cable systems. Because as I've given this clinic before, back in the day, 75% of the promotion for a pay-per-view didn't come from the person producing the pay-per-view, although you did, you, you, you checked your box on your television programming because your storylines led to that pay-per-view and you would promote within your own show. But the bulk of the advertising and the promotion came from the, the cable companies themselves because they were a 50% partner or a 40% partner, or in WCW's case at one point, a 60% partner in the revenue split. So it was incumbent upon them during their remnant promotional opportunities throughout the United States to promote said pay-per-view because they made more money doing it. So by launching on pay-per-view instead of television, I'm not only getting the television promotion that I'm going to get anyway because of the deal that we structured, but I'm going to get all of these other opportunities from pay-per-view companies, big and small, local and national, around the United States generating the launch of this new version of WCW. So it was a strategic decision to launch on pay-per-view because I thought it would benefit us in the long haul, in the aggregate, if you will, in terms of promotional spots and coverage, more so than launching it on television. Fewer people would have watched it. That was okay. You know, if we would have launched on TNT, for example, even conservatively, we would have done two and a half or three million viewers, right? Right. Fair? Whatever. Two million. Doesn't matter. We would have had two million viewers. We would have had substantially less than two million viewers on pay-per-view, but the promotion that we would have enjoyed on the way to the pay-per-view and the buzz that we would have hopefully created at the pay-per-view we would be able to follow up on next the following week on Nitro when we finally did make it to air and probably do much better than just launching on television, if that makes sense. 
Vegas. Talk to me about Vegas. Did you have a venue in Vegas, mind? baby, Vegas? Yeah. One of the things that we did that didn't have anything to do with, you know, creative. When I say we, I mean, Brian and Steve and I um, was look at, okay, we've got to, we've got to control costs, you know, traveling, touring a live television show twice a week is fucking expensive, right? You're looking at upwards of probably $400,000, well, $200,000 an hour because um, you get some economy of scale in there. But, you know, you're probably looking at $400,000 per, per, per event. Um, it's expensive. And then you have the infrastructure that you need to have in place in order to pick up and travel a hundred plus people and equipment and staging and so forth all over the country, 52 weeks a year. It just wasn't, it wasn't doable at that point. We would have wanted to eventually get back to the point where we were once revenues were coming in again and the ship was on the right course. Obviously it was a goal to go back to the way we used to do things in 97 and 98 and the way WWE have, was successfully doing things by 2000 and 2001, we would have wanted to get there, but we knew we weren't. So the first three years, the idea was to have a full-time home in Las Vegas. I think it was the hard rock or planet Hollywood, one or the other uh, that we were, I think it was hard rock. We were negotiating with to act. They were going to do, they were going to do this anyway, or they had been talking about doing it anyway. We just happened to dovetail into those conversations at the right time, whereby they wanted to build a small 3000, 3,500 <laughs> seat venue on top of one of their parking areas so that they had another venue adjacent to their property where they could have small concerts or comedy shows or whatever it may be. I think it was like a 2,500 seat arena, something like that, 3,500, which for television is perfect. That was perfect. And we were well down the path of being the permanent resident of that particular venue so that when we flew in to do television once a week, or even there was some discussion about doing it twice a week, never got too serious, but whenever we flew into television for television, our cameras were there. Our rings were there. Our staging was there. Our lighting was there. Everything was there. The only thing we had to bring were the bodies to do it with, which was a lot less expensive than having five or six semis filled with equipment, you know, 140, you know, airline tickets that need to be booked every week and all that kind of horse shit. We worked out a sweet deal with a hotel for hotels, which would have saved a lot of money. Um, airfare, by the way, going in and out of Las Vegas Cheap. is probably consistently cheaper than it is anywhere in the United States. And there are more flights available in and out. So it's not only cheaper, it's easier. And, you know, most people like going to Vegas to work once in a while. It's worth mentioning the, uh, the space you're talking about became known as the joint. It hosted a ton of UFCs. I had a 4,000 seat capacity and it was indeed built where 300 parking spaces used to be, uh, on the East side of the hard rock resort property along paradise road. So it's funny as you're describing it, I'm like, wait a minute. I watched a bunch of UFCs from there. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, let's rapid fire some stuff. Would you have changed the look of the ring? Would you have changed the look of the entrance set, the logo, the way the, the, the show was shot? Or would you have just brought the same crew over and said, Hey, let's just do it here. I would have shit that logo like fucking day one. The ink would have still been drying on my brand new fusion media business card 
before I, I, I would have killed that logo before that ink got dry. Um, the state, yeah, I would, we would have redesigned staging. Look, when you go into a new venue and you're a permanent part of that venue and you don't have to load in and load out every week, it gives you the ability to design some very unique um, staging. And that would have definitely been part and parcel to the new look of the show. Just relaunching the show as it was three months earlier or two months earlier would have been stupid. No, it would have had an entirely different look, including logo. Lighting would have been different. I would have wanted a 20 by 20 ring instead of an 18 by 18 ring. I always wanted to make that transition. You know, I, I didn't when I probably could have or should have. But going into this new venture, that was top of my list of things to do, although it's not a really big thing. It was important to me. I wanted a bigger ring. I wanted a bigger stage. I wanted more action on that stage as opposed to making it smaller and having the action seem smaller. It's a visual thing. Would have put a much more heavy emphasis on music. Obviously, I had great success licensing the Jimi Hendrix music, something that had never been done before up until that point. And it worked. It really helped with Hulk Hogan's NWO character. Um, I would have made, and by that time we were, you know, having conversations with record labels and publishers uh, that wanted access to our show. Um, so that would have been a music would have been a much bigger part of our show uh, music that people were familiar with, by the way, would have been a much bigger part of the show. So there would have been a lot of visual changes and a lot of it would have just been as a result of being in a cooler venue and not having to load in and load out every week. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up here and let's put a bow on it. We know that, uh, Jamie Kellner is going to cancel WCW programming from all Turner networks. And a spokesperson for TBS said, basically, we've decided that professional wrestling in its current incarnation is not consistent with the upscale brands we've built at TNT and TBS. Therefore, we will not be carrying it. So Can I stop you right there? Yes. Hey, Jamie Kellner, if you're listening to this, or if you have any relatives, close or distant, or neighbors or friends, please share this. Jamie, you're a dick. You're a dick. Professional wrestling doesn't meet the upscale content. Fuck you. I've seen some of the shows you produced. <laughs> Tell me, uh, I think the, uh, the story goes, you're on vacation with the, the wife and family. You think, man, I'm, my life's about to change. I'm going to be busier than ever. I'm going to be back in the rat race. So let me go soak up a little bit of family time. You fly them out to Hawaii. You're hanging out at the beach, your phone rings and someone says, Hey, uh, we can quit worrying about our new company. Cause it's dead. Yeah. It wasn't even that clear to me. I was on, I, was, I don't know if I was literally on the beach or just gotten off the beach, but there was a fucking umbrella drink somewhere in my proximity and the, you know, my phone rang and it was Brian. He said, it's over. And of course I'm thinking, Wow, good. We're closed. We're moving forward. It's over. This whole process, this negotiation, the due diligence, the blah, 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 blah. All that stuff is over. And now we're ready to rock. I said, that's outstanding, Brian. Probably didn't say outstanding then. That was, a, I started doing that a couple of years ago. I probably said, great. Can't wait. And Brian said, no, Eric, it's over. I know. You just said that. Can't wait. No. Eric, the deal's over with. It's done. We're not doing it. And when he said it, however he said it to me, it took a minute for it to sink in. I, I don't, I 
I think I went into a kind of an outer body experience. I think I just went numb. I just shut down. I wasn't like emotional. I didn't get like sad or weepy or angry. And I, I just shut down. I just went into like this weird state of neutral. I didn't feel anything. And it just, it just took a while to set in. And it wasn't until later on that, I think it was like 1130 in the morning, my time, or maybe in a little earlier. Um, and it wasn't until later that evening that I started really registering what didn't happen. Before we jump to some fan questions and put a bow on this episode, let's pretend the big bang show did happen. I know you said you didn't necessarily have creative done. Just take a stab at it. Uh, who do you think is in the ring with their hand raised after the main event concludes at the very first fusion show, the big bang, who would I wanted it to be? Yeah. Goldberg. Really? Yeah. If you couldn't come to terms with him financially, who would have been one a sting. Okay. I like it. Well, let's jump to it. We asked uh, you guys listening uh, at 83 weeks. Uh, do you have a question about, uh, the big bang for Eric uh, hazard on uh, Twitter wants to know, I know you're not a belt guy, but these are the designs for the reboot. According to WCW's belt maker. Personally, I don't think uh, they come close to being as nice as the ones WCW used from 94 to 2001. What do you think of them? I don't know if you saw the image, but, uh, I guess, uh, Joe Marshall once upon a time published a, a sheet of designs for new title belts. Do you remember ordering new title belts or thinking that we might need that? I, I don't, I, and I wouldn't have been involved in the process. So it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It probably did happen, but I would not have been a part of it. And I don't recall seeing those images, so I can't comment on Michael Eldridge says, were there any mistakes from your first tenure as president that you would have learned and applied going forward in this carnation? I think that's obvious, right? <laughs> yeah, I could have written a book. Um, Justin says, if this pay-per-view would have happened, what wrestlers were you planning on building around? I think we pretty much broke that down, but I wanted to ask you, did we miss anybody as I sort of ran ran through the roster and bounced around a little bit? Yeah. You know, I don't think so. I'd have to go back and look at it and think about it from that perspective. You know, we've talked about the guys that I felt strongly about the bigger names that everybody knows. Um, I, I I'll just reiterate what I said earlier. I think the one guy who would have emerged that was relatively new and young to the scene would have been Sean O'Hare. I would have really, really tried hard to build Sean O'Hare into the next Bill Goldberg level guy. Fernando Diaz says, had this pay-per-view happened, how ironic would it be having bang energy sponsor this pay-per-view? Uh, that's not necessarily a question, but I do want to ask, did you know, or, or maybe Brian or Greenberg, somebody had brought to you and said, Hey, we think we could get a sponsorship out of so-and-so what was there a new to wrestling sponsor that you heard and thought, Hey, that could be big. Not that comes to my mind. And I, I just have to say no to that one. I, I think that was, you know, sponsorship was something that was incredibly important, a major target, uh, that we wanted to achieve, but it was down the road. You can't build sponsorship successfully until you've got a hot property. And we knew that our job for the first year or two years 
was developing a hot property. Hopefully by the end of year three, you're hot enough to start having serious conversations with sponsors. Otherwise, you're talking to opportunistic buyers, sponsors, advertising agencies who are just looking for the cheapest shit they can find. And you don't really want those sponsors because it kind of creates the perception that that's the only people that will do business with you. Sometimes it's easier or better in the long run to walk away from a sponsor that in some way, shape, or form perhaps devalues the perception of your brand than it is to just suck it up and wait until you're really hot. Let me ask about, uh, the, the Turner contract for a minute. Had you been able to do that deal, uh, and, and you're staying with Turner, of course, they still had a nitro and a thunder, but you've said before many times here that thunder was sort of the beginning of the end, uh, for WCW, because there was just too much. Uh, do you think that you had figured that out based on it being out of one singular location moving forward. Would there have been two WCW shows? And if so, would you have kept the names the same? Would you have moved the days? Uh, would have kept the names the same. Yes. There would have been two different shows. The economies of the acquisition and the offer that we made would have required that we had that commercial inventory, uh, to build upon. So yes, there would have been two different shows. They would have most likely maintained their same names. I don't ever recall a conversation, you know, suggesting otherwise. So I'll, I'll just default to yes on that. Um, and I'm not a big fan of moving nights, you know, television. Well, maybe more so back then than now television was very much appointment viewing and changing nights. And we had to do it sometimes, you know, we got bounced around because of the NBA schedules or major league baseball sometimes. And anytime you got bounced around, it took you a couple of weeks to recover. So no, I, I would not have been a big fan of moving nights. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, this is an interesting question from Kevin. If the deal had gone through, do you think you would still be involved with WCW today? That's hard to predict, but here's the nice follow-up. If WCW hadn't went out of business and he would have been able to pull the nose up, do you think impact ring of honor, or even AEW would have ever been created. I think so. I, I, yeah, I do look and it's just self-serving to a a degree. It's a little hard to have this conversation because it's, again, it's, it's hypothetical. It's not hard for me. Emotionally, I can talk about fucking anything. I don't care, but it's all hypothetical. Um, I, I think if you look at the Monday night wars, which is really the premise of this podcast. Sure. When you think about it, of course, if you look at the success that was created by the Monday night wars and how all boats rise with a higher tide that those Monday night wars created, I think it's only safe to assume and project that new companies would have come along to benefit from that higher tide. There were more, there were more people watching wrestling from 1995 to 19 to 2000 than there ever has been in the history of television and or wrestling or the two combined. There never was that many people watching wrestling before, by the way, there hasn't been that many people watching since. And I'm pretty sure I'm right. When I say there never will be that many people watching wrestling in the future. Not that I'm happy to say that, But I just think the conditions of entertainment and television, the nature of everything, including culture, has shifted so much that you'll never have that many people on any given night watching wrestling at the same time. 
But because it existed, because that competition, if WCW would have continued on, either under new ownership or pulled the nose up, as you said, in either scenario, that competition would have kept that tide high. Instead of that tide going out, you know, it came in with Nitro in the Monday Night Wars. And then once the WCW went away, the tide started slowly going back out again. And we haven't seen it come back yet. I think if the competition would have stayed at a very high level, the tide would have stayed at a very high level, and it would have possibly created even more opportunities for, for the for the aforementioned, you know, independent wrestling promotions and others that would have possibly come about as a result. Straight shooting LJA says, would you have used yourself as an on-air talent like the authority figure or GM, or would you have just stayed behind the scenes? I was really over, you know, being on camera and, and I don't want to suggest that I didn't enjoy every second of it because for the most part I did, but I also recognized that it was a conflict. You know, it was a con. It was a per- the perception was a- was more of a conflict than the reality was. The reality was, without sounding like an arrogant prick, I was a very good performer, still am. But it was tired. It was done. It had run its course. I said the same thing about my run in, w- in WWE as a general manager. I was fucking awesome. Maybe one of the best ones ever. At least entertaining every week. At the very least. But after a certain point, you just, there's nothing more to do. And it's time to put an end to it. It's just characters like mine run their course because I couldn't wrestle. I couldn't go from just being an an authority figure to being in a ring like Vince McMahon did. You know, I couldn't do that. It wasn't my thing. I wasn't capable of doing it. I sucked whenever I did do it. I was a meat puppet for whoever was going to beat the shit out of me, whether it was Ric Flair or Steve Austin or anybody else. And that was okay because it paid off, you know, and I had enough heat as a character in that role that it worked. But after you do that a while, it doesn't work anymore. So I would have been well prepared. I was prepared. Now would have been, I was prepared to walk away from the on-camera thing. Lots of people want to know about potential uh, ECW talent that you may have been interested in. We did touch on Rob Van Dam. Did anybody else interest you, whether it was a a Steve Carino or a super crazy or a Tajiri or a Sabu, anybody jump out? I had already done business with Sabu. I wouldn't have been interested in him. Tajiri probably. I mean, I don't know. I I don't recall ever looking at the ECW roster at that time and going, oh, I really like that guy. That guy. I I just didn't operate that way. That's not how I populated a roster. People came to me from that organization, ECW or any other organization. I'd evaluate based on that, but I wasn't looking at a particular roster and kind of figuring out a way to cherry pick it. Um, so no, the answer is no. Other than Joey Styles, yeah, right. Don Callis, no. There were lots of different names that people asked about here. I'll rapid fire them off. Jeff Jarrett, nope. Uh, Scott Hudson. Yes. Mark Madden. Yes. Dave Penzer. Probably. Michael Quinn has a good question. He says, seeing how TNA launched in 02 with weekly pay-per-views, did you ever wish you had gone that route when the TV deal was pulled from WCW? And if not, what'd you think of their weekly pay-per-view concept? I thought it was the dumbest damn thing I'd ever heard of. 
I got a phone call again. I'm in my car <laughs> this time. I'm, I was with Mrs. B and we were driving, we we're driving through Arizona somewhere. I was in the middle of the desert and I get a phone call from Jerry Jarrett. I think Jeff was on the other end or might've been in the room and basically an offer offered me an opportunity to come on board their, their new version of wrestling um, that was going to be a pay-per-view only model. And I, Thanked Jerry for the call. I was very appreciative and very professional. And I hung up on my phone. I looked at my wife and I said, Mrs. B, these people are heading for a brick wall and they don't even know it. They think it's going to be a fun ride. Now, that was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard of. Last one, then we'll wrap things up. Tony Flowers wants to know, having previously been number one, what was the plan to reset audience expectations? There'd be a risk of the public expecting WCW to start competing with WWE on day one. Anything less could be interpreted as a failure and calls for immediate disinterest. How are you planning to overcome that? That's actually a solid question. Managing. No, it's more than a solid question. It's a very, very smart and perceptive question. Someone has their finger on the pulse right there because managing expectations, first of all, creating anticipation. Here's where I know this is okay. Get your weed whacker out, folks. We're going for a fucking ride. You thought this show was over. Surprise. Here we go. There's a, there is an art, right? To building a promotion or building a business or building anything. And, for me in, in entertainment, at least in, in professional wrestling as I know it, the real art is balancing the creation of anticipation because you have to do that. You have to make people want to look forward to something. A main event tonight, if you're watching a weekly television show, a pay-per-view, you know, next month, if you're promoting WrestleMania, you know, um, Whatever it is you are building to in your story, either on a weekly level or on a monthly level, um, you've got to build that and create anticipation so that people want to be a part of said experience, whatever that is, weekly, monthly, annually, doesn't make a shit. You, you need to get them there and you get them there by creating anticipation. Just like when you were a little kid and you couldn't wait for your birthday to come around because maybe you'd get a new bicycle or you couldn't wait for, you know, Christmas to come or Hanukkah to come or whatever to come because you knew that was a time of celebration and it was going to be fun and you're going to get gifts or whatever it is you're going to get or Halloween because you're going to get a bag full of candy or graduating from high school because then you're going to be on your own or turning 16 because then you're going to get your driver's license or your first state or the first time you get laid or whatever it is, your first job, all these things in life that we grow up as human beings in this country, in this culture, being groomed or conditioned is a better way to say it, to look forward to the next something, whatever that is, the, the art in harnessing, creating and harnessing and managing that emotion of anticipation is an art unto itself. The other part of that, the yin to the fucking yang, if you will, is managing the expectation of the emotion that's going to be created at the end of the anticipation ride. So you've got to really balance those two things. If you create so much anticipation that you fail to manage the expectation of the result of that anticipation, you're going to walk away with disappointed people. Now, 
Sorry, you got me excited with that question. It's one of my favorites topics. For us, I would have been smart enough at that point. Look, I was smart enough to figure it out in the beginning of how to create anticipation, like who's the third guy, for example, and where Sting's story was going to go. And all you know, we we I learned this form of storytelling and the art of anticipation and managing expectations by trial and error. Some of it I tried and worked really, really well. Some of it I tried not so much. Trial and error was my education when it came to the art of anticipation and expectation. They're two different things. I would have come in quietly. We would have made noise. We would have created awareness, but the personality of the new WCW would have been more humble in the beginning. When I launched Nitro, I was a mucker father from the get-go. I was giving away finishes, pulling stupid rabbits out of my hats, trying to get people to watch the show, getting people to sample us. I did everything but paint myself purple and dance on my head. That wouldn't have been the approach this time. This time, the approach would have been less is more. Until we started building that momentum, it's it's so we 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 reproved ourselves to our audience because the lesson that I learned from Gary Considine, the former executive producer of the of the Tonight Show on NBC, told me people vote with their remote, and once they pick up the remote and go, "I'm voting against you," it's really hard to get them to change their vote back. I was well aware of that, had thought about that for a long time, as if you can't tell. It was like where the focus of most of my creative process was, is how do we create anticipation? I don't know. Go dark for a little while. Anticipation makes a heart grow fonder. Um, not anticipation, but absence makes a heart grow fonder, which creates anticipation. It leaves a door open for it, at least. But I would have really come in more humble. And would have worked the, the the message you would have heard from announcers to the talent to from me and everybody associated with this would have been something to the effect of we're going to work really hard to get your business, and that would that that message, however whatever shape or form that message would have taken, would have would have been from the perspective of humble. And we know we had work to do. We wouldn't have recognized overtly the mistakes and the failures and the miserable time, you know, that existed 12 months before. Um, but we also wouldn't have hearkened back to the successes that we were having while we were kicking WWE's ass in 96 and 97 and the first part of 98. We wouldn't have done that either. We would have come in completely different and earned the audience's respect and, 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 and loyalty and then started building it to the point where we had something to brag about. And then we might've gotten a little, you know, chip on our shoulder, but it would have taken a while. And it would have happened at the big bang. Speaking of big bangs next week, it's perhaps the biggest of all spring stampede, 1999. I think this is one of the, uh, great forgotten pay-per-views in WCW history and check out this main event. First of all, Randy Savage is your special guest referee. And we've got a four-way match and who's in it. What about sting Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair and diamond Dallas page. Who would have thought DDP got his hand raised, but he did. It's his first world title win and check out the undercard Goldberg's in there with Kevin Nash, Booker T and Scott Steiner are working for the U S title. We've got Benoit Malenko teaming up to take on Raven and Perry Saturn. 
And by the way, Arn Anderson is in the corner of Benoit and Malenko for the cruiserweight title. We've got Ray Mysterio and Billy Kidman. We've got Conan in singles action against disco Inferno. Scotty Riggs will be in there with Mikey Whipwreck. Bam Bam Bigelow will be in there with the former Sandman. He's known as hack here in a hardcore match and to get us started. Moving to Guerrero and Blitzkrieg, who has become a cult favorite. This is one of the best pay-per-views in WCW history. What a stacked lineup. We're talking about it next week because we're right here at a big anniversary for a big day for diamond Dallas page. As it went down on April 11th, 1999, we talk about so many great WCW pay-per-views and this feels like it's one of the forgotten great ones, dude. I haven't seen it since it happened, and I can't wait to go back and look at it next weekend as I prepare to do this show so that we can continue to enlighten and entertain as we always do. Well, a beacon of truth in an otherwise murky world of professional wrestling narrative. By the way, you get all these shows early and ad free, uh, including a very special roundtable that's coming up. Uh, here in just a couple of weeks with, uh, Tony Schiavone, Eric Bischoff and Jim Ross that we filmed a few weeks ago in Jackson, Conrad Thompson, Oh yeah, I was, get Conrad. Come oh, on yeah. now. Oh yeah. I was there too. I, I'm just excited about this. We've got a lot of really fun stuff coming your way. And, uh, before next week gets here, I encourage you strongly get your cock out, uh, watch spring stampede 1999. It's only two fifty a month right now. Did you know that Eric, that right now you can sign up for the WWE network on Peacock for $2 and 50 cents. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm still stuck in the fucking mental mud of get your cock out. Well, that's what we're saying now, you know, pull your cock up, uh, get your peacock out, whatever, uh, shake your tail feather. I get it now, but yeah, when yeah. the first words came out of your mouth, when the words first came out of your mouth, I'm going, what the fuck are you talking about? It was a good pay-per-view, but nobody's going to rub one off to it. Uh, well, DDP probably has, but maybe nobody else <laughs> fire it up. Spring stampede 99. You want to watch this before you listen next week. And don't forget to join us over at adfreeshows.com. We just dropped, uh, something really cool over the weekend, Derek. We had Eric Bischoff. Actually, you're Eric Bischoff. We had Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone watch the WrestleMania three match between Randy Savage and Ricky, the dragon steamboat. They provided alternate commentary. And today we just dropped a look at the belt. They wrestled for the actual championship. They wrestled for you get to see it in glorious 4k. And we tell the story of that championship belt. There's something for everybody over on adfreeshows.com. Can we agree on that? We can not only agree on that. I will testify all day long. Adfreeshows.com is the most fun community of people. Not I mean, the content, I can't even keep up with the content you guys are creating. I mean, when you're done, you know, by the end of next year, you're going to have so much content. We're going to be able to launch a cable television station <laughs> of our own 24 seven with the content that you guys are, you're going to become what Ted Turner created with cable news. You're going to create with adfreeshows.com, but it's not just that that's like a big part of it. And the fun part of it, but it's quality of the people that are part of that adfree shows community. And I look at people that I haven't had an opportunity to really, you know, interact yet with. And I do interact quite often on AnfreeShows.com and our special live events. And I love doing it, by the way. But there are people that I see in social media interacting with each other. And the amount of support that the community provides to each other and just a general sense of positivity that exists there, just freaking cool. 
mean, you, you and your team did an amazing job and I'm a part of that team. And I know that, but the, the, the backbone, the people behind the scenes that are working their asses off are doing such a great job of creating such a cool environment. I'm really proud to be associated with it. Well, and we're proud to have you a part of it and we hope that you'll consider it. Go check it out right now. I think you'll be glad you did. It's adfreeshows.com. We'll be back next week with spring stampede, 1999. If you'd like to hit us on Twitter, we're at 83 weeks. If you've got a question about that show, he is at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. So if you follow me on Twitter, you know, I refer to myself as Conrad, the mortgage guy, and actually used to program myself in my phone going back like, I don't know, 10 years. So whenever I would share my contact information with someone, I was easy to find in their phone. You know, it's easy to meet a person and then you sort of remember meeting them, but you don't correlate their name and what they do with their face. You know, does that make sense? So I just program myself in there as Conrad, the mortgage guy. And now that's what I call myself on Twitter. I believe in being easy to do business with, but don't take my word for it. Ask Steven up in Hobart, Indiana. He says, I had a great experience working with Derek was a breeze. He was always thorough and kept me in the loop to make sure I understood everything. It was very fast and helped me get a great rate. A big thank you to Derek and his entire team. Now, thank you, Stephen, for the five-star review. The five-star reviews are piling up, man. If you want to save money, if you want to make this as painless and hassle-free as possible, you just got to try SaveWithConrad.com. That really is what my family wants to do, because Derek is my cousin, by the way. Let my family save your family some cash. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket, but we will save you money. It's not a matter if, it's a matter of how much. Save with Conrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Hurry to save with Conrad.com. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you may feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't ever. To the naked eye, trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they are and they can't stop quickly. And even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop over a mile to stop. By that time, it's too late. And the result is a potential deadly crash. The point is you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly. And even if it sees you, it ends in disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way and you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. Paid for by NHTSA. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.